0: Well, uh, Lars, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for it. Uh, Whoops. Our... <laughs> Thanks for hopping on, man. Um, so, could you just go ahead and give a, a brief bio and some of the big things you're, you're interested in?
1: Yeah. So, a brief bio. Uh, my name is Lars Doucet. I live in Texas, um, not in any of the big cities, just like in just the central Texas in some medium town. Um, I am a Norwegian citizen and an American citizen. My mom's an immigrant. I was born in Texas. So I kind of got a foot in both countries, um, which will become relevant later. Um, And then um, I'm a game developer. That's my actual day job. Um, These days I do a lot more consulting than actual game development because uh, indie game development is a really, 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 really challenging and difficult business. Consulting is a little safer and more steady, especially when you have three kids like I do. Big things I'm interested in that presumably got me on this podcast is, you know, I'm I'm interested in all the nerdy stuff people are interested in, but particularly I have a particular interest in an economic philosophy known as Georgism, which is really, really obsessed with land. And um, that has taken on a lot of salience lately because of the housing crisis. I've been into it for over a decade, but it's getting less and less marginal every day and seems like it's starting to break into mainstream thought. Um, I think that's because housing prices, as George predicted, are now going through the roof.
0: Definitely. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, God, I've got so many questions for you. i am tried to think the best, the best attack angle. Um, so h- how about this? Um, is the rent just too damn high?
1: Yes, the rent is too damn high. And the really important thing to realize is that it doesn't have to be. Like one of the things um, we'll, we'll get into specific questions to get at the heart of this, but I think most people in life know that the rent is too high, but why rent just keeps going up is this kind of mysterious force. That a lot of people don't understand. And the basic problem is that you basically have two camps. You have kind of the Marxist camp and you have the, I'm, I won't call it even capitalist, but I'll just call it status quo. Because yeah. nobody knows what they mean by the word capitalist. Right. So the status quo camp is just like, well, that's just the way the market works, which means it's fine. Right. You know, and then the Marxist camp, I, I feel like is obsessed with treating symptoms rather than getting at the root cause. You know, so that'll that'll be the socialist, the Marxist camp will be for things like public housing and rent control, which I'm not opposed to, by the way, like yeah. the public housing and rent control. That's fine. But that's a forever treating symptoms kind of thing. Like if you're sick, you need to treat the symptoms and you need to cure the disease. Right. And Georgism is all about curing the disease that is fundamentally behind housing crises and arguably recessions.
0: Definitely. And and I, this, Henry George, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this goes beyond just the, You know, kind of like the, the NIMBY critique that we just need to build more housing. Isn't that correct?
1: Yes. So, I mean, obviously you will find a lot of Georgists in Yimby town, you know, right. Yimby for those in the audience who don't know what that means. NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y means not in my backyard. It's uh, activists who oppose housing and um, oppose basically building anything more in their block because they know that more housing will increase the supply which will decrease their home values, right? right. And uh, YIMBYs are the opposite of that. Yes, in my backyard where people would push for more housing whether that's public housing or just more market rate housing or any kind of housing. right. Um, and so, yeah, Georgism goes a little bit beyond just standard Yimbyism. You know, standard gimbies will be like, "We we need some zoning reform, and we need to like build houses." Georgists are like, "Absolutely with you on all of that, but we also need to do some other policies." Right. Um, and they have a diagnosis for why the problem is there in the first place.
0: Got it. And, and what is that diagnosis? What's that? What's that kind of next step? And and that that causes you know rents to just keep going up.
1: Well, it's basically all because of land, right? And what do we mean by land? It seems really weird when you create an economic philosophy that's centered on land, because in the modern day, we've been taught that like, we're, we're freed from the land. We're not peasants anymore. Like, we're not an agricultural economy. Right. Like, what does is, what is land matter? I work from home. The internet, everything's digital. Nothing is real. <laughs> Nothing's real. Right. Like, why, why does, what is land? Like, what are you even talking about? Who cares about large tracts of land in the 21st right. century? And the answer is, is that it's kind of the secret force that's sort of behind everything. Um, and land has a couple of properties. First, you, you can't make it anymore. Like you can't make any more of it. Like just the amount of land that's in the world is, is what there is, especially if you understand land as locations, right? right, And and real estate agents give it away. Location, 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 right? It's everything that that that's everything, right? It's right there. And so if you do some studies, you'll notice that it's like when you're buying a house, you're not buying. Like, like a a fraction of the cost of the house is the house. The rest is the land. And it's also insane that houses appreciate in value. Like, think about it. What is a house? It is a built thing. Like anyone who's owned a house knows there's a freaking money pit, right? It
0: wears, it wears, right? It's like a car. It just breaks down. It just,
1: yeah. It's a depreciating asset. Like, you know, why would that continue to go up and double or even triple in value, depending on where you live? It's yeah. because the land is going up in value and the land goes up in value because you've got a scarce asset and a scarce asset in a place with a growing population, supply and demand, what's going to happen? It's going to go through the roof. And, um, and then we as a society need to decide on a sensible policy for how we're going to allocate our scarce assets. And right now, the way we allocate our scarce assets, all scarce assets that nobody made, by the way. It's right. one thing to be like, you know, um, one thing about George is that he confuses people because he doesn't take like the hard left or the hard right, like aspect, like he's very much for like hard work is good and you should deserve to like make money from hard work and profit is okay. Making money from investments is okay. But what's not okay is making money from other people's hard work in the form of land rent, you know? And he says basically that, you know, like the scarce resources that nobody made and that there's, a fixed amount of, and that there's a lot of demand for. Society should have a policy for how we decide who gets that. And right now, it's first come, first serve. Right. Right. What? What? What do you, do you? And when we think about property rights, like this is mine. Like, why do you get to say that this is mine? If you look back in history, I mean, it's usually because somebody killed someone for it. And the, the, your your current right to have it is almost like it boils down to the fact that it's like if you don't get off, I'll call the police. Right. Right. And so it's okay to have property rights. I like property rights, but I think we should take a hard look at scarce things that nobody created. Like if you created it, okay, that's fine. You can say it's yours. Right. But if you didn't create it and there's not enough, and there's only a certain amount of it and everybody wants some of these things, why should the first person to squat on it and just get there first? Like, I mean, indigenous rights is a separate topic and we need to be sensitive about that. But just within the world of, you know, someone, like, like two people are swimming to a desert island, right? Yeah. They both fell off of a boat. They're both swimming to the desert island. One gets there 10 seconds before him and tells the other one to go drown. I mean, there's, there's no justice in that, right? right? And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. And um, when you understand the scarce nature of land, then you need to come up with policies that account for that. The other thing about land is that land increases in value due to its location, right? right. And that location goes up in value based off of the activity of others. right? Right. If I own an empty lot right next to Times Square um, and it goes up in value, I'm not doing anything to make it go up in value. The activity of New York and everyone in New York. Right. And so like me just having a little hot dog stand there, that's a very valuable hot dog stand. Right. But it's not that valuable if it's in Gerlach, Nevada. Right. (laughs) But if someone goes and builds a mega city in Gerlach, Nevada, then all of a sudden my hot dog stand becomes valuable, even though I've not shared any Anything with the community, right? And this is that's kind of George's in a nutshell. We'll get into the weeds in a bit.
0: Gotcha. And he and he George does make a distinction between like land improvements, right? And just yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Gotcha.
1: That's a core thing. Um, do, do you want to ask that next and go into that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So there's a real estate. Okay. So I have in my hand, um, my my, my, my son brought this because he found on the floor because we
0: we're nice. a
1: monopoly set the other day. So real estate, okay, so real estate is two things. There's the land, which is this little slip of paper here. Yeah. And there's the improvements on the land, right? Right. Together we call that property, but they're two completely different things, right? You know, and we there's there's more kinds of improvements than just um, buildings, but buildings are typically what we mean 98% of the time when we talk about improvements. You can have other things like um like especially when we're talking about like mineral land, like a land, like an oil well, yeah. you know like the oil, land with oil on it is valuable. And then if it has a pump jack installed, it's even more valuable, but most of the value is there because of the oil, right? Right. You know, um, and if you have a tool shed or a garage or swimming pool, those are all improvements, right? You know, um, if you have a field and you plow it, the act of plowing the field could be considered an improvement. You know, if you plant crops on a field, the crops could be considered an improvement, you know, and things like that, so.
0: Awesome. No, I, I, I like that. And that distinction is really important. So uh, prescriptions. So, so we've got this diagnosis, you know, what does George propose, you know, like a tax, like land value tax, like what, what's the answer?
1: Yeah. So there's um, land value tax is basically the big policy proposal. Basically the policy proposal that George proposes is that we should figure out basically for every piece of land in America or just whatever your jurisdiction is, if you want to pass it yeah you know, you want to assess land at its full value. You want to figure out basically what it would cost to rent the land. And if you think about like who would ever rent land, well, that's exactly what a parking lot is, right? Right. If you have a parking lot and you just like, what, 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 what is the amount of income you could derive from this place as like a parking lot, assuming it's downtown, right? Yeah. You know, um, and that amount of income is the amount that should be taxed from the site every year. Got it. A hundred percent. And, um, if it's a residential place, you should tax the land rent, which is the amount that you're able to charge in rent, not because of how nice the house is, but because of how nice the neighborhood is, right? Or the right. fact that it's a corner lot on a cul de sac, you know, or on a waterfront property, right? Like the amount that you can charge because of the land, not because of the property. I mean, not, not because of the building, right? right? And George says you should tax that at 100%. Um, in actual practice, it's a little hard, hard to get up to 100%. But modern Georgists are like, if you do 85%, that's good no, enough. No. And then honestly, in practice, every time land value tax has been done, it's much lower than that in practice, but you get incremental benefits from incremental implementation. It's not one of those things where you got to do it all or nothing. Gotcha. But basically, once you do that, once you tax at 100% of ground rent or land rent, yeah. um, which is based to of the locational value of the land, you have some really interesting effects because despite what you might be from, might have um, kind of intuited from your experience with other taxes, uh, land value tax is the only kind of tax you can't pass on to a tenant. It's the only kind of tax that a landlord just has to eat and can't pass on to the next consumer down the line. Like if I tax um, anything else, if I tax capital or I tax income, you get what you call dead weight loss. Yeah. example is like cigarettes or gasoline or, um, or, or candy. Let, let's start with, candy or hamburgers, anything, yeah. right? Um, if you tax, well, I'll use an example of oil. If you tax oil, out there somewhere, there is an oil well that is right at the margin of productivity, which means they're making a profit margin of one cent per barrel of oil or whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever is the minimum to just or $10, you know, whatever is the minimum to be worth it. And if you raise the tax by the amount equal to just what's putting them on the bubble, they're going to shut that well out of production. They'll probably keep the well, but they're right. going to stop pumping oil, right? And yeah. um, and they'll wait for the price to go up or the tax to go away. And then that decreases the supply and decreased supply, but fixed demand re- means increased prices. And wouldn't you know it, the price goes up by almost exactly <laughs> the amount of the tax, right? Right, you know, and um, so what happens if your supply curve is vertical, which means that no matter what you tax this, there will be exactly as much. Right. And that that only applies to land. It's the only thing in the like world it. that applies to, right? Um, I mean, unless you, you refer to some some other mineral in which we've, we've extracted literally all of it or, or whatever, You know, some right. other weird edge cases that are rare in principle. But basically, yeah. whenever you have some asset that is 100% fixed in supply or close enough to it, um, the reason that you have deadweight loss, lost economic activity from taxing something is because when you tax it, producers make less of it because some of it is no longer productive to make. And there's no land factory that's making land every year. So if you tax land, it's not like the land fairies like, well, better, better, better make less. You know, we're planning on making a whole nother earth next year, but we we better wait until there's a policy change, right? You know, we're going to make a couple new Manhattans, but... um, You know, we're, we're just going to have to delay production a while. It's like, no, there's exactly as many San Francisco's and Manhattans and, and 1600 Pennsylvania avenues, 902 and those as there were before the tax, right. which means the landlord just has to eat it. Right. And yeah. that's maybe not so much fun for landlords, but what happens is it causes two things. One is it causes anyone who's holding land just for speculative purposes, which means no. I'm holding it because I know it will go up and down. Right. Right. Um, I am going to jump off that property like a hot potato because like maybe I was expecting to earn X percent a year in increased um, appreciation. Well, right. this tax is eating that up. So this is now a negative asset it. for me. Throw it on the market. Throwing it on the market increases the amount that is now for sale.
0: Right. And
1: because it's now on the market, that puts downward pressure on prices. And um, so now fewer people are bidding up land who don't intend to use it. And more land is now on the market. And a third thing that happens is it now only becomes profitable to hold land if you're going to do something productive with it. Got it. Right? So, like, and all of this has the effect not of increasing the price, but lowering it. Um, Generally speaking, there's some caveats. Because what it also does is that there tends to some, it can also cause a land boom to meet the effect. So it can so what it'll what it will do sometimes is that all things being equal, it'll lower the prices. And there's been studies that show this, um, or at least it's fully capitalized in the price of the land. Gotcha. It'll often lead to more efficient development because um no one's gonna hold an empty lot and make it a parking lot for surface parking right in by middle. Times
0: Square, because they know Times, right, right. Right. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're gonna they're gonna sell to someone who's gonna build a really valuable thing to do there, right? Right. And then um It also leaves less sprawl because instead of going out in the suburbs to buy more marginal land, because all of the land in the city center is too expensive, people are going to build more densely in the city center. You're going to get more walkable, dense cities. You're going to get more housing, right? People are going to, it's going to be less efficient to build single family homes and more efficient to, because another thing is that, remember, improvements and land, you know? there will be marginal land where it's, it's only valuable to have like a small house on it. Right. But it's like, if it's like primo land and you've got to pay like a land tax on it, you got to build something really valuable there. So you're right. going to build a lot of housing, right? You're going to build a lot of houses for a lot of people. And, and here's the other part to it. You untax the building. So property tax oh, nice. taxes, the real estate, It taxes, the property, property is land plus improvement. Land tax takes away the building tax takes away the improvement tax and leaves only the land tax. So it's like, build as much as you want. You add an right. addition, we're not going to raise your taxes. Doesn't matter. You know, you add a second floor, you build as much as you want. You know, I mean, zoning is still an issue and we need to get into that. But you build as much as you want and we're not going to punish you for it. In fact, that's literally the only way to be profitable is to build something. And you know what is fair is people building something and investing and working hard and getting rewarded for that rather than, Extracting value out of other people who have worked hard and invested, right. just because you hold leverage over them because you own a scarce resource and they don't, because you got there two seconds before they did.
0: Right. I love it. Yeah, I I really like that. Has anyone you know tried land value taxes like on a big scale?
1: Yes, a couple of places. So one thing I want to back up and say real quick is that um, we we didn't really introduce you Henry George, but so oh I, yes,
0: sorry, should have done that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you can edit this together however you like. Yeah. So, So who's Henry George, right? So Henry George was a 19th century, um, we call him a political economist. That's what they called themselves back in the day. Um, And he was immensely popular. One thing that's really kind of forgotten today is that what we now call like, like around the turn of the night, at the end of the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th, there was just a huge, just really huge civil unrest, right? We had one of the worst recessions we've ever had back then. They call it the Long Depression, right? And it was worse than the Great Depression in many oh, wow. ways. And it was, I mean, it was the 19th century, right? Yeah. It's just like, everything's terrible. Yeah. And um, basically, people, like, like prices were out of control, like, in terms of rents. Like, you, I mean, it, it was, there was massive poverty. And, and so George was this political economist who developed this theory of land and he noted that there was a paradox that wherever you have progress, you also have great poverty, right? How is it that we've got all this great progress, industrial technology, and economic development, and we also have so much poverty going along with it, yeah. right? And Marx had his theories, but George had another theory. And he's like, it's because of um, the capture of land that allows people to extract rent up to gotcha. the margin of productivity. And George was not the first one to have this idea. He did not invent the philosophy. He is its greatest popularizer, however. Got it. Right. Henry Ford didn't invent the car, but kind of the father of the automobile. Yeah. Henry George is the same way with what we now call Georgism or Geoism and the land value tax, especially. Um, But he did have antecedents. Um, There was some Danish paper I read that was like claiming that land value tax actually goes back centuries into the Viking era um, and that there's all kinds of precedent for it. And that's probably true. I haven't checked up on that. Um, But then also, just more importantly, Thomas Paine, an American founder, was an advocate of this. Adam Smith and David Ricardo laid the foundations that George picked up. So Adam Smith, Captain Capitalism himself, and David Ricardo had a lot of the same critiques about landlords. In fact, one of the phenomena that George describes for how extraction of value from land rent works is a theory that comes from David Ricardo called Ricardo's Law of Rent. Right. Oh, nice. And we'll get into that in a bit. And then the other thing is that the French physiocrats, they were a movement in France. Um, they developed a philosophy basically identical to what George came up with before George. I'm not entirely sure if they knew about each other. But what's so funny is like rederiving the principles of Georgism, like from first principles, just like coming up with the same idea based off of looking at the world. Yeah. It's something that's happened multiple times. It's <laughs> a good sign. And, 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 and George was... And George did it himself, and he was not the first to do it. You know, nice. so in a way, like recreating Georgism while having no knowledge of Georgism is like kind of the Georgiest thing in the world, you know. That's awesome. Um, and I have a I'll tell you a really funny example of that sometime about Eve Online, where an economist they hired to fix recessions in Eve Online with no knowledge of Georgism, rederives Henry George's land value tax from first principles. And it worked. Um,
0: oh, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. So anyway. So going back to your question of um, your question of has it ever been tried? Well, it's been tried in EVE Online and it works. Um, I'll describe that in a little bit, but um, in the real world, it's been tried in a couple of places. Um, I'm currently in the process of a big research project to like track them all down and look at them. Yeah. You know, so one, there was a couple of little communes in, I think it was Fairhope, Alaska and Alden. I forget what city. Um, I forget what part of the country. So Fairhope and Alden were kind of kind of like Georgia's communes, single tax communes. Gotcha. I think they basically experienced mission drift, and so um, they're they're not great examples today. Um, Their Denmark is a really good example of a place that has land value tax. I don't think there's any place that has done like one hundred percent. Land value tax, completely untaxed property, done in the it. old Georgist way. Right. Um, but there are places that have approximated it at different times. Houston, my own home uh, stomping grounds yeah. in Texas, did it in 1911 under the aegis of um, Houston's first Hispanic major, J.J. Pastoriza. Um, he implemented something called the Houston Plan, which was very close to a Georgist scheme where basically you assess land at 100% of its value and you tax it at like, I think it was 75% of the land value, 25% of the building and no other property. So like no money, no furniture, no cars. Not that they had cars back then, but like none of that was taxed. Um, And um, it succeeded, uh, at least according to the evidence that we have. It's not enough to do a robust analysis, Um, but it was struck down by the Texas Supreme Court um, because we can't have nice things. Right, of course. But um, those are a couple examples off the top of my head. There's a couple other countries that I don't want to rattle off right now. I mean, I know there's at least six, um, but I'm not done doing my research. And then there's also just a more broad kind of cousin to Georgism is just the concept of land reform. Right. And so land reform is when you basically just take the land away from the aristocrats and give it to the peasants that are working on it. Yeah, it is the biggest missed opportunity in American history where we did not give the freed slaves 40 acres and the mule. We would have our economic development would have been massive like even even like if, if the racist people who had refused to do it were just thinking of their own economic interest of the country it, it still would have been a perfect idea to do um right and also the racial justice aspect of it is completely like even more pressing but it's, it's one of the biggest lost opportunities in our country um and um but land reform is basically like where you just take the land of the aristocrats and then you're just like hey peasant you're working this field is your land now (laughs) right and one of the most shining examples of that is taiwan right and taiwan had land reform um i believe it was under wolf latijinsky i'll have to look that up to make sure i'm not confusing that with like japan or something yeah but um he was a georgist economist and he implemented land reform now land reform is not the same as land value tax george was not really opposed to land reform he like had some mild criticism of it saying that it's like Land reform is good, but the problem with it is that after a couple of generations, it's possible for the land to reaccumulate. Right. Right. And so you need something a little more sticky. Um, But I mean, certainly not a bad idea. Um, And uh, but that has been a really common way for a lot of developing countries to kind of, there, there's this book called how Asia works and it talks about the plan of how to go from kind of a, third world, backwater world, modern industrial m- digital economy. And it starts with land reform. Right. And um, so th- there are places that have done like George, George's adjacent ideas like land reform that have been very yeah. successful. And there've been a couple of little places here and there that have done land value tax, but it's not something that has had the continent wide dominance that um, say the American model of, whatever we're calling capitalism this week, whether it's Keynesianism or Milton Friedmanism or, or whatever, versus the Soviet model of, you know, whether, whether, whether that's true socialism or not, like whatever they were doing, whatever America was doing, like we can't say they've not been tried. Like they've been right. tried for like a whole Cold War's worth of effort. Georgism um, didn't get implemented to that degree. It's been tried in a couple of places and there's been some good research papers coming out of some of those places. that shows that it does work. Um, most recently, out of Denmark, where there's this massively just beautiful study that shows that uh, land value tax actually cannot be passed on and will not be passed on. Like right. they they just show that it was implemented. We've studied it; it happened. Super well controlled study. Um, so yeah,
0: nice is, and and this is kind of a broad question, so it might be difficult to answer. But you know, what's the best critique of Georgism you found?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of them, right? So it depends on what angle you're coming from, right? So if you're a Marxist, it doesn't go far enough because right. the point is to destroy capitalism and any, you know, and, 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 and all that, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Mao wanted to murder the landlords. And right. by the way, <laughs> Mao's land reforms went really poorly because he right. destroyed his agricultural basis. You know, um, You know, George doesn't want to murder the landlords. He just wants to tax them. So if you want to <laughs> murder landlords... Well, Georgism isn't for you, you know? I mean, I know that's unfair to say of all Marxists. I'm sure Marx himself didn't want to murder any landlords, yeah. you know? Um, Marx himself had some critiques of George. So we'll just, instead of putting words in his mouth, we'll just let him use his own words. Marx didn't like Georgism because, um, because George had a two-factor model of production. George says the factors of production are three, land, labor, and capital. George says it's labor and capital. And I mean, not George, but Marx says it's labor and capital. Gotcha. And Marx basically thinks that land is a kind of capital, and so that Georgism is a sneaky way for capitalists to like tweak stuff on the edges and try to save capitalism, gotcha. right? And um, that that's Marx's critique, basically, that uh, George doesn't that George isn't a Marxist. Gotcha. Um, and then the um, there's other critiques that come from, say, the right. And so on the right, I mean, it really depends on how hardcore you are. Like, right. if all taxation if all taxation is theft literally all of it yeah. then 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 land value tax is a tax so that's that right. so that's bad yeah. right and i've seen people who take that i mean and it comes down to and now my understanding comes from like so my background is that i came from a very conservative family i'm less conservative now but i'm not like hyper anti-conservative like yeah. is popular on the internet right and um I believe a lot of the values I grew up with like hard work investment is good. Saving is good. Being thrifty is good. Yeah. Like, um, but I really, what really resonated with me with George was the notion of it's like, I'm entitled to the, 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 the product of my labor. Yeah. I'm not entitled to the product of your labor. And George says that basically the current land scheme is a system where people who own the land can extract other people's labor. And that's unfair. Right. And um, if you don't agree with that and you agree that it's like, hey, I paid for the property fair and square and now you're going to screw me over. It's like, I'm a homeowner and this is like my only investment. Like, you know, so there's, there's, there's one angle that it's, in my opinion, kind of nakedly self-interested. Right. I understand it. I, you know, I'm not going to judge someone for, you know, that I will strongly disagree with them. There's other more, like in less self-interested, more principled objections. Um, one is that okay, land value tax is great. I buy the argument about dead weight loss, but it's impractical. It can't actually be done. Gotcha. And I'm currently doing a research project to see if it actually can be done. And I'm trying to keep an open mind. Like maybe it can't be done. Like let's just look at the evidence, and yeah. then I'll present the evidence. And and so far the evidence is pretty convincing. Um, and I would say that because I'm a georgist. But when I write the article, then you know people can you know tear me apart. So yeah. We'll see. Um, But, um, and and the arguments against practicality is, and these are things I think are fairly salient and worth responding to in good faith. Um, One is that it's like, okay, well, you say all you have to do to do um, land tax is you've got to assess the value of the property separate from the land. But when you buy the property, you buy the property and the land. So how can you say that this isn't just a made up number and we're just right. supposed to trust government bureaucrats to do this? This sounds like a centrally planned economy. This sounds like socialism. <laughs> uh Right. You know what I mean? And that is a valid critique, right? Yeah. And um, places where land value tax reforms have failed is when they've gotten sloppy with the assessments because gotcha. it leaves the tax results. I believe that the path to Georgism and land value tax reform in America is getting really good at land value assessment gotcha and um i'm actually taking a course on land value assessment right now from ted Whartney, who at at the henry george school who is a um pretty famous within the assessment world um assessor who's worked for a bunch of places he's implemented um george's policies in a lot of places and he talks about all his methods for assessing land my neighbor actually is um a land appraiser, and I can talk about the difference between assessment and appraisal because it's yeah. different. Um, and I've been getting some tips from him and learning how they do things. And it actually, in practice, assessors and appraisers actually value land and property separately all the time. My tax bill has two separate numbers. Now, making uh, sure they're accurate requires you know, some training and some best practices. But if anything, it's easier now than it was 100 years ago in Pastoriza's right. time. And Pastoriza was able to get it done you know, with just paper and pen and like Horses. Right. You know, so like we have modern GIS maps and all kinds of technology and just the ability to like survey our population like never before and do all kinds of crazy stuff. So if anything, assessment is easier and cheaper now than it used to be. Um and it was it was perfectly plausible in Georgia's day. It's even more plausible now. Um, the other best critique of it that I can think of is um, well, okay, so like. David Friedman brought up that um, there's a criticism that, you know, okay, if the value of the land is going to be done by government appointed or government elected people, then people with most government connections can basically game the system. Yeah. And um, that's a valid concern. I need to investigate to what degree that happens in practice. Um, But also, I feel like sometimes whenever people are like, okay, well, people will just game the system. That's kind of a fully general critique of any system. You can raise that to any, rich people will game every system, like literally every system. And they are gaming the current system really bad. Right. The critique should not be rich people can game the system or will game the system because you're right. They can and they will. The question is, can they and will they game it less than the current system
0: currently now?
1: And right. the current system is income and sales and capital tax. And right. they hide that income and they don't report those sales and they hide that capital and they have all kinds of tax shelters and Google and Amazon are not paying all that much in taxes That's and they're right. doing the double iris with a duck sandwich and they're super good at it. And like the money and the capital can hide. The land yep. at least can't hide. Can't hide and you know land. what? The assessment can't hide either. So if you do a crappy assessment, it's hard to hide the fact that you've done it. If anyone motivated is paying attention, right? You have Absolutely. to do all of your you have to do all of your sneaky corruption out in public, where everyone can see it on a big shiny map.
0: Definitely, and that's yeah. it's a lot harder to game.
1: Yeah, it, it is harder to game, right? You know, there's there, there's less levers you have. It's just like here's the land, here's how much it's worth, here's all the good reasons it's worth this much, here's all the sales that are happening in the area. That's the other thing is that. The other argument is that land value is detached from like market valuation. And so like some conservatives say we should get rid of property tax and move to sales tax. And like, because property tax is just like made up government evaluations, yeah. but uh, sales tax, that, that's like market, truth, data. And it's like, well, actually like the real test of, you know, if, if you, you know, you found me, I think from Astral Codex 10, you know, he's always talking about prediction markets and stuff. Yeah. Assessment is effectively a prediction game. That's I'm right. predicting what this land will sell for. And so if you do them often enough, it's, just, it's self-correcting. It's like you just learn from the prices that are happening. So if you do annual assessments, you know, or even biannual, and you just look at the market, you're like, I'm predicting this will sell for this much. So it's like, oh, it did within this margin of error. And just keep feeding that back in until we get really good at it. And if you follow the best practices, you'll be good at it from day one. And then um, the other part of the criticism, though, was that because, um, uh, I forgot my train of thought here all the second, um, but like, yeah, sales taxes, you know, are more direct reflections of market value and things. Anyway, so there's ways to keep valuation in tune with the market. Yeah. And um, I think that's less gameable than sales tax. I mean, you, you can pay people under the table, you can refuse to report your sales, you know, and then also, Oh yeah. The other argument that is made, I, a Texas politician made this to me was that, um, you need an army of assessors and it's too much government bloat. And the problem with that is that you need an army of enforcers for income and sales tax. Yeah. And also you all, part of that army is the people who have to report their own income and report their own sales. You are passing that cost. You are, you are basically conscripting the whole population to do free labor to report their own income and sales. And they're kind of incentivized to lie to you about it. Right right and then you also have all these penalties hanging over their heads if they don't report it correctly you can have an enforcement agent to go after individuals all over the place right and then you gotta like audit and like do all these checks and stuff and like no one's measuring the dead weight loss that has on the economy like right. of everybody having to hire accountants and like report their income taxes or the deadweight loss on businesses of having to report all the sales tax and all that and you know not, not to mention the direct cost to the government of the That's enforcement right. agents of that, right? And so it's like, you look at a map of the land and if you get your value from the land, you're done once you've gone over all the land. And it, it, does, it doesn't scale that badly. You know, like also the more people we have, like at, at most, like the more parcels of land we might have, but the amount of land is not going to increase. So right. it's not going to be a problem that scales all that poorly um, compared to, income and sales tax reporting, which is going to have to scale at least linearly with the population, if not more than that, right?
0: Right, absolutely. No doubt. And, and it seems like, you know, the, all, there, there's so many costs. Uh, I think I should have iterated this more in the beginning of the podcast, but just the insanity of like housing prices in, in, in the US now. So I, I saw this stat that in 1960, um, uh, the median income would pay for 40% of the median house in 1960. Mm-hmm. And now it's uh, eight, you know, it would only pay for 18%. Right. And so it's just, you know, I, and I, a lot of this, I think, explains the appeal to uh, socialism to a lot of young people like Bernie Sanders. It's like, you can't get on the housing ladder. Right. Like, you, you just can't get housing.
1: Yeah, you can't get on the housing ladder and extract value out of other people. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's like Not only can you not get a place to live, you can't get free money like all the boomers got. Right. That's right. You know, and so it's like, I mean, and this has happened before, like socialism's highest strength in America was at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th. Right. And there was a real moment where America was going to go either to the Bolsheviks or the Georgists in terms of which way they wanted to go. Right. It was either land reform and land value tax or it was socialist revolution in America. And a couple of things happened like Great Depression prohibition to world wars right. you know kind of mixed things up a lot and a bunch of other effects but one of the other things was we invented the automobile right and the automobile was the safety valve that took you go fresh. you spread out you can spread out suddenly gotcha. a lot of new land opened up right you know a lot like like it was basically as if you, you know so this is this is a thing it's like you can't make more land right the earth has as much right. land as it's always had but the amount of land the productivity of certain land increased that's what that's what happened right and so and by productivity I mean like the usefulness of the lamp so it used to be like so what do I mean by productivity of, of lamp like I, I work from home but say I commuted to an office right? And right if I and say I'm commuting to Google right if I live right next to Google the productivity of my house is huge because I can walk right next door and work for Google yeah but um, if I can if I invent the automobile and I don't have to ride a horse to work and I can work you know I can commute, To maybe even three hours a day if I have to, then the productivity, I mean, that sucks. So, but that plot of land still has productivity that's valuable enough to me because I can commute from that place to my job at Google. I don't actually work for Google. I work for myself, Um, but it's just an example. And so the automobile and the railroads and stuff like that, and and just increased commuting um, pushed out the margin of production. And that's part of of Ricardo's law of rent. And... That put a huge damper on housing prices and basically bought us a century until gotcha. now. When, like, and it came with a bunch of other costs externalized costs like pollution, like yeah. deaths on the highway, the fact that roads that the cars suck and everything's terrible, you know, <laughs> and we don't have walkable cities anymore. Right. And Houston has tons of sprawl, yeah, you know. And that sprawl is planned, by the way, that sprawl is not unintentional, it's intentional, you know. Um, and it happens in every other city too, you know. That, um, that was that was our safety valve out of either a socialist revolution or a georgist revolution and gotcha. it allowed us to go through the status quo that we have today and then um, all the free land that we took from the indians you know we parceled that out into the american dream for certain categories of 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 americans you know which was uh you know not black people not poor people you know right. certainly not indians right you know um and so Yeah. And then they built their wealth off of that, you know, and then once the land starts to get monopolized though, then the prices go nowhere but up. And that is the model that we have. And, um, another aspect of Georgism, I'm not sure if I'm as convinced of this, it seems plausible, but I'm always a little nervous about it. Yeah. Is, um, that also Georgists claim to be able to call recessions. Um,
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And, um, I'm not willing to go to that extreme because I'm just so nervous about being wrong. It seems plausible, but basically they believe that land speculation basically extracts so much from the economy that basically they push the extraction to the point just past the margin of productivity where it causes a collapse in the system and then a reset in prices. And it's kind of no, they claim to have called the last recession, the great recession, which was so famously housing based. Right? right. Exactly. You know, and so they're predicting another one. I don't know when it's supposed to come. It's like 2026 or 2028. Um, I am not personally fully on board that train until I do a lot more research. If they call the next one, then maybe that'll do it for me. Right. But um, I, I believe that it contributes to recessions, but I also believe that recessions can also be perturbed by so many black swan effects. Like, right. I don't know, a giant worldwide plague. Right. Exactly that i'm i'm not willing to be able to say like be able to say i can call it to the year like this right? Is the
0: thing right that makes sense that makes sense you
1: know, although i certainly believe that it helps contribute to those conditions
0: absolutely absolutely um so i i want to move on uh but there's still a line so you mentioned eve online um, oh yes and, and this is like when i was a kid you know i'd play video games and i always thought and i read the foundation series by asimov i'm like man we should be testing like macro econ ideas, like in video games. Like, this is like a great opportunity. Why is no one doing this? It sounds like um, someone did this with EVE Online. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, but first, I want to talk about what EVE Online has in common with Ultima Online and Final Fantasy 14, which is the MMO version of Final Fantasy, yeah. and also all of these new, like, crypto backed um, metaverse games based off of land ownership. What do they all have in common? What, what do you think? Digital housing crises
0: every single. Do they, do they really?
1: Yeah. Now, now, when certain conditions, I'm writing an article about this right now. Um, but basically, because in my job as a consultant, I'm getting pitches across my desk for what I call digital land grab games, where basically it's a game based off of there's like digital plots of land for sale. Buy yeah. them now because they're going to be used up soon. You know, <laughs> and then like they let you do stuff in game, and I'm like these guys are going to have digital housing crises. And like oh, if, they have dream- if they have dreams of becoming billion-dollar unicorns, they're screwed because. Yeah. Their, 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 their growth is capped and they're going to be stuck between having to rug pull their early backers by printing more land, more digital right. land, um, or they're going to have to um, basically be content with the fact that no new players want to join because there's no land for them to use. Um, so anyway, so let me talk about EVE Online. Yeah. So Ultima Online, Final Fantasy XIV, and EVE Online. These are all three MMOs that I've studied that had, that had or have full-blown housing prices to this day. Wow um ultima online and final fantasy 14 have them eve online at least as of 2003 had solved it i don't know if the reform stuck around i haven't played eve gotcha. uh, lately so i don't i don't know but at least as of 2003 they identified the problem they solved it you know um who knows if they made wise policy decisions since? Right. but in ultima online in 1999 this was kind of the grand of mmos it wasn't the first but it was the henry ford of mmo yeah that popularized the genre there was not a free scrap of land anywhere to place your house. I could afford a house. I could buy the blueprint. I'm like, I want to buy a house. There's nowhere to put the house. Where can I put it? And like, you had to go on eBay and like pay someone on the black to market buy to buy a house because people were just putting them down because the land was scarce. Right. Yeah. And so, what is the difference between digital and physical real estate? Well, in the digital world, there's no laws of physics. Right. right? So, like, Land in a digital world doesn't have to be scarce. Right. Like you can print land like you print a money Like just print more land, dude. You know, <laughs> just like print me up a whole other continent. You know? Absolutely. Um, but some gains, and so first of all, there's like an aspect of trust. So for digital land to be scarce in an MMO, it has to be by convention. Like gotcha. nothing, and the same goes for any digital asset. Like any digital asset can be land-like if it fulfills certain properties. Um, so, for instance, nothing stops Magic the Gathering from printing a million black lotuses next year. Right. They're not going to do it because we trust them, and because it's not in their best interest. Yeah. Right. And that's the same sense in which digital land is scarce. Gotcha. It's not physically scarce. It's just we know it's they're not going to make more. Right. It is land-like. Digital land is land-like, like truly land-like to physical land. When it's necessary to do stuff, when it's a factor of production. Gotcha. When you need it to do stuff, it's not just nice to have. Right. And there's a sliding scale of land So if it confers benefits, that makes it more land-like. If it doesn't do anything, then it's not land-like. If it gives you only soft benefits, that's still valuable, you know. And then the third right. thing, the really important thing, is that it gains value based off of its location in the virtual world. Gotcha. Right. You know. And so, like I mentioned, Gerlach, Nevada, earlier. Gerlach, Nevada, yeah. is the place that I believe, as of whenever I googled it. The cheapest land in America. You can get an acre of land in Gerlach, Nevada for $237. It's in the middle oh my of the God. desert. It's in the middle <laughs> of the desert and nobody wants it, right?
0: You just get it.
1: Yeah. $237. <laughs> Buy it while it's hot because it'll, it'll be hot for a long time because right. it's scorching there. Yeah. It's the middle of the desert. Um, Land in San Francisco, 2,400 square feet of empty lot in San yeah. Francisco will cost you a cool $2 million.
0: Oh my God.
1: <laughs> right. You know? So don't yep. tell me that it's not location, location, location. Yeah, it's all So case. in the digital world, when you have land that follows three principles, that it is, is genuinely scarce or close enough to it, you need it to do stuff where it confers a bunch of benefits, and it increases in value and desirability, and it's based on its proximity to either population centers or areas of economic activity or other valuable things, then I say it's land-like. And whenever you have a game that has digital land that is land-like, you have a digital housing crisis inevitably. And that, that's held up so far in the three big examples that I've really looked into. Um, but I would predict that it would happen in other places like that. And the solution, if your digital land works like that, you have two options. One is to be like, I'm in a video game. I don't got to follow the rules right. in the physical world. Land, print, or go burn. You
2: know? <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like you get a land, and you get a land, and you get a yeah, land. right everybody gets land. Right, you know, it's like digital land reform. Yeah. You know, just digital land inflation. Just do it. <laughs> You know, um, you can do that. Now that is not guaranteed to work because it depends because the locational aspect of land matters, right? Right. So if you're just printing more Gerlach Nevadas and people still want digital San Francisco's, you know, that might be somewhat out of your control because um, what makes a San Francisco a San Francisco is everyone wants to be there, right? right? So it kind of depends on like how your digital world is formed. But generally speaking, like printing more land is an option. The other option is to make land like ne- less necessary, you know, gotcha. like less benefits occur to land. I call this digital land dilution, and it's what I predict that all the land grab games are going to do to get to gotcha. try and fudge out of their housing crisis. They're going to keep the amount of land the same, and then they're just going to slowly nerf it, and not really tell you right. to make it so that the newbies can actually play the game, even though gotcha. they're not landowners, right? So that right. they don't have to choose between pissing off the aristocrats or you know pissing off the peasants
0: right the landed aristocracy yeah yeah that's seriously a, landed aristocracy. Yeah, no doubt.
1: prop 13 established the landed aristocracy <laughs> in california like it totally did it's the most un-american thing in the world america was founded on not having aristocracy well i mean and then we had a bunch of plantation slave owners who were landed aristocracy right. so we were founded on it but yeah. it's contrary to what it should have been founded on that's right anyway uh, uh, I
0: well and, and lars i I, I know we're scheduled for an hour. I, what's your timing like? Because I, I, Let's go for it. Let's do okay. it. Okay, awesome. Uh, can you talk about proper, what Prop 13 is just for the audience?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Prop 13, I'm going to answer your even line question. Yeah, absolutely. Two, but Prop 13 is a, a referendum that passed in California, like back in, I think the 70s, that basically that basically grandfathers in property assessments. So Gosh, basically shall... your assessment doesn't rise. Oh, and- that's bad. Um, if you owned a house before it was passed. And like, it can actually be transferred like that kind of privilege oh can God. be transferred. So it really is landed aristocracy that you can, you can just give your noble title to, you know, your Elodial heir, right? Oh my God. And so it's created this just, I mean, it's just straight up aristocratic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just like, these people are better than you because of, b- because we say just, so. Yeah. And they get to extract value off your back. And they get to be they, the government subsidizes them for free based off of your labor because they have God. blue blood and you don't because they had housing in 1973 and you didn't right and um it is the worst most regressive property law in the country and it is why values in california are so damn high <laughs> texas has some of the highest property taxes in america um, state property taxes, and it's one of the reasons we have actual affordable housing, right? Wow. You know, you know, I mean, California and Texas are like kind of on the same scale. I mean, yeah. te- Texas has a lot of dumb stuff going on. I'll be the first to say that, and I'm, I'm not proud of every single regulation or thing we've right. ever done, you know. Um, and you know, I mean, Texas drinks a lot of its own Kool-Aid about how great it is. I mean, I'm proud to be a Texan. And I, I will, I will fight anyone who wants to poop on me, but I will, <laughs> I will be happy to criticize my own, my own little brother, you know, yeah. slash state. Right. But um, but one of the things we have going for us is really high property tax. The portion of that property tax that taxes land is what keeps our land values down. Because it's like God. land speculation is not super profitable in Texas, whereas in California, it literally makes you an earl, right? Yeah. You know, and um the proper the, the portion of the property tax in California in Texas that taxes the building disincentivizes the building, and that's bad. But it's I'd rather have it than not have it. And I'd certainly right. rather have it than California's policies. And what I'm afraid of is some politician thinking they're improving things is going to do away with the property tax because nobody likes paying property taxes. Right. And yeah. just turn this not into fun. California because the only thing worse than high property taxes is <laughs> escalating rent.
0: Yes, Absolutely. You know?
1: And so to get back to EVE Online, so Ultima yeah. Online had a housing crisis. It's still going. I Googled it because I was like, oh, wow. I remembered it from 1999. Ultima yeah. Online's still around. And I Googled it. It's like, let me learn about this historical housing crisis that right. I remember. Let me find you. Yeah. First thing that comes up is like a forum post from 2018. And a guy is saying, um, here's some tips for how to solve the current housing crisis. <laughs> and it's like, presumably, it's still ongoing. And you know what his proposed tip was? His proposed tip was to make buildings bigger on the inside than the outside, like Doctor Who TARDIS style. <laughs> like, dude, dude, did you just propose oh, the non-Euclidean a <laughs> equivalent of up-zoning for density. I love it. <laughs> that's awesome. Which, for those who don't know, up-zoning for density is a very common YIMBY proposal that's like, we need to have more dense building yeah. uh, codes. So, like, instead of single-family housing, we need to be able to build, like, you know, like, duplexes and triplexes. So, right. can fit more people, like, make better use of the land, right? Yeah. You know? And because it's expensive. So, like, that will bring down prices and increase supply and blah, blah. So, yeah. anyway, it's like, I mean, it, there's problems with that idea, but in, in Ultima Online, right? You right. know, basically make your, castle, make your little shack a bag of holding the size of a castle. <laughs> right. But um, so the housing crisis was still ongoing. I looked into Final Fantasy XIV and there yeah. I got this guy to like, just tell me he, Final Fantasy XIV veteran tell me all about it. Like yeah. housing there is like, they do print land in Final Fantasy XIV. They don't in Ultima Online or at least not uh, very I gotcha. often. Final Fantasy XIV land is all shoved off in the housing districts. Which are kind of like hyperdimensional suburbs. I gotcha. So like you got to warp to them from a city to go there, so they, they <laughs> kind of like exist over. There. And they do that so that whatever problems are happening with housing don't like infect the game world. Right. But the problem is you've got. I mean, I can almost like pick up this. Uh, let me see if I can find the picture of um, the land speculators. My buddy was showing me. Okay. Let me let me get this full screen. Yeah, totally. Open, open image in new tab uh view full screen i don't know how to do anything on the computer okay let me share a screen if i can can i do that yeah definitely okay so can you see this let's see there it is yeah yeah okay so you see this right here it says placard right yeah so this here is an empty lot in a housing district in final fantasy 14 this is a person who owns a house all these people are sitting here probably they're all uh macro bots yeah. they're clicking on that placard because oh they're sitting there waiting for that placard to go on sale. That, that land lot to go on sale. And When it goes on sale, it go, it's it got a randomized timer that determines when the land goes up for sale.
0: Oh my God.
1: And they're going to sit on it and they're going to sell that land on the black market and hold it out of use for the highest bidder. Oh, or they're wow. going to put like a, just a cheap house on it. Right. Yeah. You know? So anyway, so Oh, that's that is, awesome. Oh, I have another one. That's really good too. Um, the other thing is, that's
0: is a great image.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so, um, F11, how do I do, how do I computer? I do not know how to computer. But anyway, um, the other one I want to show you is, I want to show you his house. Um, he has a waterfront property with fireworks display. <laughs> That's awesome. Which is, hilarious. okay, so let's see. Uh, yeah, so where's the view from, from Joe's house? Okay, here's the view from Joe's house. Open image, a new tab. Hide my email, share a screen. Okay, so, all right. Final fantasy 14, right? Okay. Can you see this? Yeah. Okay. So, um, some of my, my, my boy Joe here, um, he owns a house on a waterfront property and a housing property. And it's got a fireworks display. If you will open a real <laughs> estate textbook or an econ one-on-one textbook, a firework display is a textbook example of a public good, right. right? Public goods have the tendency to have whatever investment the government makes in them. Um, be absorbed in the land values of the nearby properties So the fireworks display is a textbook example, because it's non rival and non excludable you consuming it doesn't prevent someone else from excluding it and you can't prevent anyone from consuming it. So if you put a fireworks display in that everybody likes it makes all the land values go up. Oh, that's um, awesome. And then it's a waterfront property and we all know from real estate location 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 everyone wants to live near the water, not only because it's pretty but because you can fish in it. So even if you don't want to fish in it someone else might so it increases yeah. the value of that property. So anyway, um, I'm going to stop screen sharing there. So anyway, so Final Fantasy XIV has a housing crisis. Um, and so they do print more land occasionally in the hyperdimensional suburbs. Um, but because there's no cost to holding land, there's yeah. no property tax, there's no land tax. People just speculate on it and sell the houses on eBay. And they go for more and more and more as the population increases, which is exactly what George predicted. And all of the stuff we know from real estate and theory plays out. Like right down to the, I I couldn't, I was shocked when he showed me the picture, I was just blown away. It's like, this is so textbook, Yeah. waterfront property with a fireworks display. That's awesome. And so like the whole thing with the fireworks display, public goods, there's a theorem called the Henry George theorem that Nobel prize winning economist, Joseph Stiglitz, Joseph Stiglitz demonstrated that shows that public goods spending gets absorbed into land value properties. Nice. You know, and this is just like, that's
0: odd. That's a perfect image.
1: It works out in the digital world by people who are not trying to say anything about Georgism or land or anything. They just stumbled across it by just, they basically created a simulation of these things happening in the digital world. So Eve Online, that's the buildup. Eve Online had land-like assets and those assets were yeah. factories. And the factories they existed in a fixed amount. They were created by the company that makes Eve. I don't know what they're. I can't remember their name. Um, yeah. And um, they, they, they provided them and they sold them to players and players would buy them. And you had to use them if you wanted to buy build ships. If you wanted uh, to manufacture ships, at least in 2003 when the game launched, I don't know what it is now, you needed to hold a factory to build ships. Gotcha. And so what happened? People bought the factories and then held them out of use and tried to sell them on eBay for $300 <laughs> to $900, or $600 <laughs> or whatever, right? And you had no way to even know if they actually owned the factory. They were right. had a listing on eBay. It was all shady and stuff, right? Yeah. And um, Raman Chakrasade, like, he has this famous Gamma Sutra post, pasted in 2013, detailing what he did in 2003. So he bought the game the day it started. Like, the servers had already gone online in Europe. So, like, almost all the factories had already been bought. He immediately raced out to like the furthest, like, rim worlds or whatever, like, uh, out in the edge where like people didn't care as much and bought the factories there before it was too late. (laughs) And then he made a ton of money. And he's like okay yeah my theory is confirmed um basically the problem is that there's not a holding cost to this asset and because it's scarce people are going to speculate and scalp. so you need to impose and so he writes a white paper and he sends it to the ceo of uh, eve and says um here's how to solve this problem yeah and um you need to Uh, Add a use it or lose it fee to holding factories, which is going to disincentivize speculation because there's no longer a guaranteed rate of return and you'll probably lose money unless you're building just an F ton of ships. Nice. Which is what we want, you know? Yeah. And so he did that and they did that and then everything was fixed. And then exactly what he predicted happened. Speculators jumped off of the factories. They put them up on the market. The price went down people only bought them if they planned to use them. And then the economy started chugging again.
0: Nice. And
1: so he solved a recession, a manufacturing recession <laughs> caused by the factories. Now, if factories could be built by just anyone, then you wouldn't have had that problem because the factories wouldn't be landlike. But right. they were a necessary factor in production and they were strictly limited in supply, which made them land-like. And um, what's so funny is that Raman then goes on to basically brag about how this helped him predict the, 23rd, the 20, 2008 housing crisis. And he uh-huh. basically makes the Georgist argument for predicting housing crisis based off of land speculation and so i just i just it, it and then i'm in the comments i'm like um of his gama sutra article in 2013 I'm like um raman if i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name right Ramin, Ramin, yeah um mr chakrasade and i understand you right that you basically just implemented henry george's land value tax and he's like <laughs> what's that that's and, awesome. and that's just to his credit right he re, it yeah. re- goes and looks it up he's like uh yeah I just looked it up yeah yep yeah, sounds about right oh my
0: god that's awesome
1: yeah so he independently rederived it from first principles because it was the natural and correct solution to the problem he observed which is not the first time that's been done i mean george himself was not the first one to do that he just yeah. kind of gets more credit because he just started this massively popular movement it's a
0: big movement that, that's so cool and and it all of those are, are such great natural experiments, you know, yes. like, which I think is uh, really telling at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, um, do you think Georgism, you, you coming to Georgism, does that have anything to do with having this background, you know, from, you know, you've you, you experienced the Nordic model, right? And then you're a Texan as well, right? Like, so you're kind of in between these two worlds and you can see, and, and Georgism in some sense is kind of like the synthesis, right?
1: So you could say that. Some way, that, to, think
0: about, some way I mean, to think about it like that.
1: You you could say that. It, it doesn't actually come from there exactly because like my dad is like a hardcore American Texan Republican, right? You know what
2: gotcha. I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: And my mom is kind of like, I mean, she doesn't have any strong opinions, right? You know, yeah. she's a super sweet lady, but she's not super interested in like policy, yeah. right? You know, um and so, I mean, I mostly just kind of got my dad's views, you know, growing gotcha. up. And I did have an undergraduate degree in... um architecture right nice. which kind of prepared me for urbanism and, and stuff yeah. like that um but the person who was most influential to me was actually my priest you see i'm eastern orthodox and oh. i converted in college i'm an eastern orthodox christian that's what this deal is um and um my priest was super into georgism and also i'm um, actually a cousin movement called distributism which goes back to like gk chesterton and those kind of folks And gotcha. it, and, it, and it's Georgism is kind of a plank of it. Like, Georgism is so narrow. Like, Georgism is like, you can just mix it up like cherry Coke. You can be geo-libertarian. You can be geo-liberal. You can be geo-conservative. You know, you can be geo-monarchist if you feel like you must, you know. Yeah. You know, and so um, he introduced me to it. And then also there was this um, writer called um, John Madai, who came and gave a presentation to our school. And he wrote a book called Toward a Truly Free Market. And it has just like, like it's half about Georgism and other things gotcha. like that. And that was, that really kind of clued me into it. And, um, once I read it, it was just like, I mean, it's one of those dangerous philosophies that's extremely convincing. So it's like, <laughs> you start reading it. It's just like, yup, <laughs> you know, it's
0: the answer. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was really interesting because it helped me get away around a lot of dilemmas because like growing up, like with a lot of conservative values, like I really, felt, um, you know, um, like I was attached strongly to them, but I also like had this like dissonance that it's like a lot of it kind of felt unfair, but then everything has been divided so much between like socialism, capitalism, the only two ways, right? the only teams, America, USSR, (laughs) you know, and it's like, that has so dominated the discourse and it's all about whose team you're on. Yeah. And so it's like, well, I know I'm not a commie, so I guess I'm a super capitalist, right? yeah you know and um being orthodox was really interesting because it's like that also was you know and i'd also been taught that there's only protestants and catholics right and atheists you know that's you it know? and, and that, that those are your those are your three choices right yes. and so like when i became orthodox it was kind of interesting because that itself was like kind of like whoa i didn't even know that like like you read about like okay so there's the catholic church and there's a the great Schism. don't pay attention who cares about <laughs> whatever reformation on the european history you know yeah and so um i i just like my, my world kind of broadened, but like my priest is the one uh, father casting sibley is the one who really influenced me to become a georgist and really honestly if i can say so it's like it's a way to like understand economic what like bring christianity and economics together for me personally you don't have to be a christian to be a georgist george um i believe he did believe in god i don't know if he would Describe him as a Trinitarian Christian or anything like that. Um, he 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 never went to church, from my understanding, either. So he wasn't like he, he was religious in a very particular and common 19th century American way. Which is, yeah. you know, religion's important, but I won't go. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot like my father in that regard. Um, and what's what's interesting to me was that it's like for me, like my foundational ideology is like I had to pick, like okay, so like what what is my identity? Am I a Republican? am I Christian? Am I conservative? Like what's important? I realized, okay, I'm a Christian. That's the one thing I'm not going to give up. I can throw away anything else. And like, I see things like you shall not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. And we're not talking about oxen here. You know, you allow the stranger to glean from your fields, you know, like all the verses about money being this thing that corrupts people, makes them evil. And you have held back the laborers' wages and yeah. those held back wages cry out against you and will throw you into the pit of hell and all this stuff. And it's like, it doesn't seem like Jesus is being subtle here. Right. Exactly. One time he reaches out and beats people up is when he's beating up the money changers and the usurers in the temple. Yep. It's like, I think he had some opinions about economic abuse. Absolutely. And it was really interesting. And it, the ancient Hebrews had land reform, which you really like every couple of years you know, and they had, and they had right of return. So anyway, talking about the Norwegian thing, it's interesting. Yeah. Norwegians have a right of return, just like the ancient Hebrews did. It's one of the oh, oldest Norwegian laws. It's called Udem. And that's probably just the Norwegian word for allodial yeah. rights. And what it means is that like, okay, let's say I'm the oldest, my mom's oldest son. I'm not, but let's say I was, and let's say she was the oldest heir, And she was yeah. still owning the farm back in Norway. Basically it means that if I go off to find my fortune and mom has to sell the land, I have the right to purchase it back at a fixed price. Right.
0: Uh, interesting.
1: Which makes land kind of a dangerous investment in Norway. Right. It, it's basically a way to keep land out of the hands of the Swedes and the Danes. who have been taking turns <laughs> conquering us over the centuries, right. you know, and basically it, it kind of keeps land in the family and, and keeps it from accumulating in the hands of the local Lord. Right. right. It, it keeps small holding, you know, it's not perfect. It has problems. There's also, we have Allemanseret in Norway, which is every man's right, which is the right to roam. People, you know, if you have undeveloped land, wilderness land, um, people are allowed to walk across it. You're not allowed to, like, put up no trespassing signs. And people are allowed to walk straight across it. They're even allowed to camp for a day. As long as they take good care of the property and they're good little Boy Scouts and they leave it as just as they found it and they don't litter or anything like that, you can't keep them off your um, undeveloped land. And so Norway has some georgist instincts. Denmark is the really kind of georgist place in Scandinavia. They actually have a land value tax. Um, I'm not sure what the rate is or what the rate is relative to buildings. And I have a beautiful study that came out in 2017. There's been a whole series of studies going back to the 60s about does land value tax actually work? And and like testing, is it really capitalized into the price of the land? Like, does it really just make the landowner just have to eat it and not be able to pass it on? Right. And there's a couple of tests that have come out and they've been, you know, varying degrees of strength. And you have to do all these like controls and like squint at the numbers and be like, it's probably right. (laughs) But you know, someone's like, well, I'm not so sure because you had to do this and that. And that's part of the problem we call the indigeneity problem, which is, um, there's something that's endogenous to the system and exogenous seventh grade science fair independent, dependent variable. So like ice cream sales in the summer, right? right exactly. so it's it's because it's hot that you have more ice cream sales, right? Exactly. You know, and that's an endogenous part of the system, right? So So like the question is, if you're trying to test land value tax, how do you know that you imposing the tax caused whatever effect you see rather than what caused you to impose the land value tax, right? Right. When you're measuring policy, people do policy for reasons embedded in the system. And and the example I'm using in my article is, say I'm Emperor Lars of the planet Lars, right? Sovereign of the Larsians, right? And so one day I go to get off my gilded throne and I go to the giant gilded ruby encrusted lever that sets the prime interest rate and I pull it and I change it from 1.2% to 0.8%. And all these effects happen in the economy. And researchers with PhDs like, ooh, 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 natural experiment, let's see what happened. And it's like, well, when, you re- 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 when when the Larson prime interest rate goes from 1.2% to 0.8%, this happens. But why didn't Burlars do that? I mean, yeah. maybe it's because um, the economy is really bad. Or yeah. maybe it's because there's a bunch of protesters at my door. Maybe I want to distract everyone from the losing war we're having with the Earthlings. Right. right. You know, and maybe those are the things that cause in whole or in part the effects you think are attributed to the interest rate. Right. Those are endogenous effects. Exogenous effects is when a giant hyperspace beast just shows up and eats every single manual gearshift car on the entire planet <laughs> lives, and then disappears. That gone. came from outside of the system, and then it caused an effect, and whatever happened afterwards is because of that thing. You know, we call those acts of God, right? Right. You love to see it. They come very rarely, and they rarely do exactly the thing you want. In Denmark, in 2017, we had a hyperspace land value tax imposition. We're as close to it as we can get. And what happened was the municipal government, for extremely boring reasons, was like, um, we got all these counties in Denmark. Right. Let's just redraw the boundaries to something more convenient. Sure. Shove these counties together, move this county here. Like just, just, just change the boundaries. Some of them get joined together. Some of them get split up. You know, yeah. We're just doing that for boring reasons that have nothing to do with tax policy. Right. All of Denmark has a uniform property tax assessment so property tax assessment across the board is the same but land value tax versus building value tax is different per jurisdiction and you just Mm -hmm. shuffle the jurisdictions oh wow so you have an end of like 250
0: oh that's awesome
1: and you did it for reasons completely unrelated to policy just for boring like shuffle all the boundaries yeah so it wasn't just like we implemented land value tax in houston for two years before the supreme court struck it down yeah we have nothing to control against it's um, we just shifted like like we basically just mind controlled every jurisdiction in Denmark effectively and just told them to raise their land and property values by random amounts so that we That's could awesome. do like regression analysis and all the kind of econometrics I don't understand, and just like see what happened and see like what small changes versus large changes, and like you know, and you don't even have much to control for because it's just perfectly like as it's not nothing's perfect, but it's as close to an exogenous shock as right. you can get. And then um, it's one of the strongest papers I've seen. There's a bunch of weaker papers like that all show basically the same thing, but they basically, you have to take their word that they're controlling for it correctly. You know, and so so Denmark is kind of cool in that regard.
0: Hey folks, there's a brief break here where we lost power while recording. We recorded the second half about a week later and Lars had a cold, so his voice is a bit deeper and we moved on to another topic to start the second half. Thanks. Uh, Norway's history as an oil empire um, and how it kind of resisted the resource curse.
1: Oh, yes, yes. So Norway's interesting. Now, I am not an expert on Norwegian history. I've just read more about it than most, right? You know, the fact that I'm a Norwegian citizen is just what's gotten me interested in it, right? There's, there's there's plenty of, like, non-Norwegians who know more about Norway than me and plenty of Norwegians too do, too, too. So with that prefaced, So Norway is one of the few countries that's avoided what we call the resource curse. And the resource curse... It's typically associated with Middle Eastern countries, but you see it elsewhere too. Um, uh, Venezuela is a good example, both when it was, you know, right-wing and in its current left-wing iteration, you know, um, and then Saudi Arabia and Iraq and um, other places like that, just historically with or without America's intervention, you know, the, the you can say America's intervention has made it worse and I, I would agree, um, but generally speaking, the resource curse is you're a country that is blessed with natural resources like just tons of natural resources and the curse becomes that paradoxically your country's development like richness like infrastructure doesn't get developed precisely because you have this wealth of natural resources like i think this also happens a lot of african countries that have a lot of mineral wealth for instance and the curse is caused by the fact that because you have these this great base of natural wealth you create an economy that's based off extraction and you don't like in order for the elites to be wealthy they don't need to develop like a robust economy right all they have to do is just
0: So all you have to do is stick a shovel in the ground and dollars fly up. And so you just never develop any real infrastructure, education or anything like that.
1: Right, right, right. And so a lot of the oil producing countries like traditionally like wouldn't have like necessarily a lot of great refining refineries, you know, like um, Venezuelan oil is like that in particular, you know, you would have... Like you, you would just sell crude to the West and Europe and China and whatever, right? Yeah. But you wouldn't necessarily like get really good at refining it and and um and stuff like that. And so you can you can do a couple of things. You can try nationalizing your economy, your your, your oil industry, but that doesn't always work, you know. Um, but what happened in Norway actually is that Norway avoided the resource curse, and they've created a really broad. Like the other way to like get trapped by the resource curse is like that resource becomes your whole economy right, right. so even if you kind of develop infrastructure it's based around that and so gotcha. your fate is tied to that one resources place in the market so price goes up you're doing good price goes down your entire economy is bust and i mean and that's and that's and that's happened to Venezuela over and over again right and um and, and other countries, like, it's not just Venezuela. Like, it's easy to, like, over-index on, like, Chavismo and Hugo Chavez and Maduro yeah. and Venezuela. But it's like, they, they have other problems besides that. And they had a lot of the same problems when they were right-wing related to the resource curse, too, you know. Um, but um, the way Norway avoided it is kind of a really interesting story because it was an Iraqi guy. Uh, let me find his oh, really? name. Yeah, it was an Iraqi guy who's now a Norwegian citizen, um, and he's like been awarded the Medal of St. Olaf, you know, <laughs> it's he's, awesome. like a, he's a Knight of St. Olaf, because he basically like just, he's res- in many ways responsible for our country. Let me let me look up what I can see. Yeah. I can find out what, who this guy was again. Iraqi, Norwegian, Norwegian oil, Star His name should come right up. Okay. His name is Farouk Al-Kassim. All right. Nice. Let me look up his Wikipedia page. So Farouk al-Kassim, um, Knight of the Order of Saint Olaf, is um, kind of the savior of the Norwegian economy. So basically what happened is that um, he was born in, um, I, I think he was from Basra, Iraq. And he was educated, you know, he studied in England, um, you know, petroleum geology, according to Wikipedia. And I believe he married a Norwegian woman And his son had some rare medical problem. I I can't remember what it was exactly. And the only place that he could get treatment for that was in Norway. So they went back to Norway while he was there, you know, presumably started, you know, working and stuff. And um, this was in the sixties and around then, let me make sure about the timeline. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In the sixties in 68. And while he's there, he was, you know, The Ministry of Industry hired him as a consultant, and he was analyzing uh, North Sea exploration. Like, as a lot of uh, just for the audience, the North Sea has one of the hugest oil reserves. Like, there's this huge oil reserve there. And he realized, holy crap, Norway is about to dive headfirst into the resource curse I saw (laughs) happen in Iraq, right? Where politically connected cronies benefit off of. The resources or foreign countries come in like american companies and they keep all the oil well for themselves and like the country the countries just becomes like this tenant to this foreign empire right. right like norway needs to be the master of its own destiny this is their oil it's clearly like they've got the claim to it we need to do things right and now is the time to strike and he wrote a white paper along with some colleagues and sent it to the government. And he said, this is the plan. And Norway followed that plan to a T and they avoided the resource curse. And so um, some people might correct me on some of the details I'm about to say, because I haven't like, uh, it's been a while since I read all this stuff. Um, But the basic sketch of it is it's he he recommended that Norway nationalize their oil industry. And that's where a lot of people stop. There's more to it than that. He um, so it is actually kind of a private public partnership. Um, Stot Oil, right, is the name of the Norwegian oil company, is Statoil. Oil. It, it later, it's, it's been changed to like Equinor now, and they've like reformed it a little. And like the policy is like moved, but that was the original idea. But it wasn't just that we're just going to nationalize the oil industry, because a bunch of people have done that and not evaded the resource curse. Yeah. What he did is essentially not too far off from a Georgia's principle, which is that it's like nobody created the oil, right? So um, we don't want any private industry to really benefit from just being able to own the oil, right? Right. That is the people's oil, so long as we can credibly say that the Norwegian people have claimed to these oil fields. That's the people's oil, Yeah. Right. But what private industry is really good at is investing in capital and investing in um, development methods and stuff. So we are going to subsidize the ever loving heck out of oil exploration and discovery. We are going to tax the ever loving heck out of oil extraction. Nice. So, what this, this is kind of a a weird way to do it if you're not used to this but what it yeah. means is that it's like what is the cost of going out and looking for oil and finding a new well well the norwegian government will pay for almost <laughs> all of that so why not do it right yeah. and then they're going to tax i don't know what the rate is but it's like huge it's like i don't know 80 90 it's, it's, yeah. it's like up there of what comes out the pipe but it was basically nice. free to set up the pipe including all of the expensive tooling and capital and like like all of the exploration, and I'm not sure exactly what's included with that. I'm not sure if like sinking the well is part of that, but it probably is. Like in all the tool design and the research yeah. and all that, that's all subsidized by the government. It's like, hey, private industry, we will fund all your efforts to like cover your costs, like go out and like find the oil. Right. But then the people get to own the profits of it. So you you get to keep some so that it's worth doing in the first place. Yeah. And it was often like a bunch of private companies are working with, I forget which one it was that uh, Farouk was specifically like working with in his time but um and so that kind of tax is um a natural resource tax like that i think it's called a what is it called a a severance tax i i i need to double check myself that that's what it's called but when you like tax the removal of depletable natural resources from a site that is called a severance tax and that um that's something Georgists tend to support and it's um and this has been, and then what did Norway do with all this oil money? We plow most of it into I forget what it's called, like it's a Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, right? And they invest that and stuff, and that's um, I think it's kind of like an endowment, like we don't it's 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 our seed corn, and so like we're not eating it actively, we're like but we use it to kind of like like the the interest from it to help fund the Norwegian um, the, the the Norwegian welfare state, and you've heard like turn of the century and stuff like all these scientists were like the industrial revolution is going to make it so that we can get the same amount of work done we're going to work less time right you know and they've actually realized that in Norway right it's like Norwegians live for vacation right you know like whenever it's winter all the birds and all the Norwegians go to Spain you know (laughs) like that's just how it is like like Norwegians just like live for their vacations and it's like you can criticize that if you want but I think it kind of beats like Like, 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 I don't remember the last time I really took a vacation here in America, you know, um, (laughs) because, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just what you got to do. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think like a lot of people who are interested in the Nordic model kind of focus on a lot of superficial aspects of it and don't understand the details that make it work. Like one thing, just as a quick aside, is one of the things that makes the Norwegian model in particular, that the Nordic yeah. model talks about all the countries, but they all, each of them is slightly different, but what makes Norway and a lot of the other Nordic countries work is scale. Like you'll sometimes hear like right-wingers talk about, well, if we had a homogenous population full of right. white people, right. then <laughs> exactly. everything would be perfect. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay. You're missing the point. Like what makes Norway work is that it's like, it got a population smaller than Houston, right? Right. And so there's not that much distance between the people you know and like whether they're native ethnic norwegians or iraqi norwegians yeah or whatever you know there's there's less distance between us so norway functions more as like a really high trust society and and when you have a really high trust society like you can do things so much more efficiently because you don't need to have tons of bureaucratic checks on things and the government can't get that complicated like Norway's effectively a municipal government right. on American scale. Like the city of New York is more like complex than Norway. I mean, Norway's like more spread out, but still, yeah. you know. And there's like less layers between everything. It's like like a, a good example is like there's a Norwegian school that like expats can like send their kids to to like make yeah. sure they know they're Norwegian and like. I I, I rang it up because I was just interested in inquiring for my kids and like their process is like, yeah, just, just go ahead and talk to Shashti and she'll, she'll hook you up. You know, like that's their like enrollment process is talk to Shashti, you know, not like fill out this form or fax a PDF or or anything like
0: that. you know That's super interesting. So you talked about size and, and why, why, why. Um, governance is so good in Norway, but do you think there's anything else? I mean, it's just unimaginable to me, even in like our local municipal government here for them being as competent as, you know, like the Norwegian government, like, you know what, we're going to avoid the resource curse. This is a great idea. Read this white paper. We're going to implement this and we're going to invest all the money for the
1: future in a sovereign wealth fund. I mean, part of it's cultural, right? It's like part of it's like, and then part of it's also like your local municipal government is not sovereign, right? Like That's they're true. part of a larger like they, they they take orders from people above them and people above them and people above them and then yeah. also also it's it's like it's just easy to forget like how easily transferable certain policies are across cultures like 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 what 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 counts for right wing in Norway is really interesting. Like in Norway the right wing party is the pro EU party. Norway's not a member of the EU. Oh, really? Where- <laughs> We're, we're a member of a lot of the treaties so we're, we're kind of sort of yeah, yeah. like practically speaking we got to kind of do what they say but we're not a full member of the e- we're, we're not a member of the eu in any like official sense yeah and like that's very intentional and like the party that pushes for it is the conservatives <laughs> because that's the pro-business stance from a norwegian context
0: ah interesting super interesting we're,
1: Whereas in UK or America, like being against these like international agreements or whatever can be seen as like, they're, they're big enough economies on their own for that right. to suddenly become like a conservative position. Right. Gotcha. I mean, Norwegian conservatives are probably like slightly to the left of Bernie and, you know, right. <laughs> all, all the other things they stand for, but like also, I mean, I mean, but, but like also like Europe is, is weird in certain ways. Like, I mean, Norway until very recently had a state religion, you know? We're, you know, like, strict. you know, despite the fact that most people there are very secular, right? Yeah. Whereas in America, like you have much more religiosity, but but you actually have like separation of church and state, right. and so it's easy to misunderstand these things. But like going back to localities, like I think the fact that Norway's sovereign really matters. Know, I mean, we still gotta we still gotta do a lot of what the EU says, even though we're not EU members. So sovereignty means a little less when you're tiny, but but still, I mean, I think it counts for something, you know, and also the fact that you can't spread out like you can here in America and that has some implications, right? Like if I were to drive a hundred miles and they all start speaking another language, right. like that's, even if I can speak English there, you know, and most Norwegians speak English, I mean, it's, it's still like, that's, that's a huge barrier, right? Yeah. So you don't settle too far from home. And the effect of that is that I'm related to like the whole County of where most of my family is from, like, you know, and so there's these really thick, just like, I don't know what the word is. Just like, I mean, like like we're very atomized in America. Like we don't have strong connections to each other. That's one of the reasons that like compared to Norway, we're, we're much lower trust society. I mean, we're much higher trust than say, like, I don't know, like Russia maybe. Yeah. But, um, we're, we're still lower trust compared to them because we're, we don't have those strong ties that bind. We can move across the country to get away from our parents. And then, right. you know, um, and, and I think that counts for a lot. Um, so, so if you want the magic Nordic pixie dust, part of it has to do with, you know, not so much that it's a homogeneous society of white people, which is kind of a myth because we actually have more immigration than people realize. Um, but it has more to do with the fact that it's high trust, that it's a small population that's sovereign and everyone kind of knows each other and bumps into each other all the time, right? And gotcha. then stays in one place and doesn't like just move, you know, because now you're in Sweden and, you know, we make fun of Swedish people and they <laughs> make fun of us back, but it's cool. <laughs> that's great. That's great.
0: That, that's, that's super interesting. Um, I, I want to pivot a little bit and you don't have to talk about it if you, if you don't want to, but go for it Eastern Orthodox. Um, you're Eastern Orthodox, correct? That's correct. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Because uh, I, I know earlier in this show, you mentioned, you know, it's almost like a third way. You know what I mean? Like, you know, usually you hear, like, oh, yeah. you could be Catholic, you would be Protestant, and like, that's that's pretty much it. Um, how did you, you know, come to the religion? And, um, and, and what made it appealing, I guess?
1: Yeah, like, I didn't intentionally set out to become a person who collects, like, a bunch of, like, statistically unlikely adjectives for myself. Um, like, Norwegian texan with threats a narcolepsy eastern orthodox christian i mean like I, w- I wasn't trying to like just make myself absolutely easily demographically pinpointed in a government database <laughs> even though i seem to have achieved that um but yeah so i grew up norwegian lutheran and by that i mean church of norway lutheran right gotcha. my dad was um I call him born again Republican. I don't think he'd be insulted by me saying that. Like he 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 believes in God. He's you know very, um, but he's very conservative. And um, I mean, it was a lot like Henry George. You know, like he, you know, thought religion was important, but like didn't go to church, right? Yeah. And then my mom. So my mom raised me and and gave me you know my my basic religious values, and she was raised in the Church of Norway, which is. Um, so the head of the Norwegian church is in fact, the king, that's not a power. He really exercises. He doesn't really act gotcha. like a super Bishop. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but so like in Houston, there is a Norwegian don't giggle seamens church, you know, that means, um, like sailors church, right? Gotcha. So like, yeah. You tend to find those in all the big port towns and they become like kind of Norwegian cultural hubs. And Interesting. so I didn't go to an English speaking church service in America until I left for college really. Oh, wow you know so that's like cool. the, the services were in norwegian i was confirmed in the norwegian church when i was 15 like oh, nice. the, the lutheran kinsaniera you know but also nice. the boys when i was 15 you know um um and, and i just grew up with that and so that's a liturgical um tradition right yeah especially norwegian lutherans um but they're also like kind of mainline protestant so like you see the same things happening within that denomination that you see in like the anglicans and you know the Presbyterians is like these fights between the traditionalists and the modernists right. and 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 all of that. Um, I was pretty insulated from that in because it was a foreign satellite church, right?
0: Gotcha. Right.
1: Attendance is actually much higher in Norwegian churches outside of Norway than they are back home in Norway. Oh, interesting. Um, because if you want to go hang out with Norwegians, that's the only <laughs> that's place, the place to, to go. Right. You know, either either that or Exxon Mobil, Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and so. Um, so, yeah, so I was raised in that, but I didn't, like, my mom became more than nominally religious kind of late in life. Like, she started off fairly just kind of, well, you're Norwegian, that's what you do, right? And then she, like, fell in with a bunch of evangelical friends and, like, you know, um, you know, like, faith became a much more authentic and important part of her life, kind of, like, by the time I was a teenager. And myself, like, I, you know, I grew up mostly agnostic Lutheran, like most good Norwegians. Right. um. <laughs> And then, um, you know, but then like kind of had a little bit of a conversion experience towards the end of high school, you know, taking it a little bit more seriously, but also just kind of bumping around and being confused by a lot of things. But to end and then in college, there are no Norwegian Lutheran churches to go to, so I just right. went to whoever, and that was kind of like going into an American church for the first time, even as somebody who's lived in America my, my whole life, like an American Protestant evangelical <laughs> church was like, what is this right, what
0: is going on
1: guitars and like hands yeah, oh god yeah right and like i mean because also like my experience was also norwegian and like if you've known someone from minnesota you know it's like a pretty good approximation yeah. of <laughs> what their ancestors were like you know and it's like oh, yes how are you doing right <laughs> like, you know like you're all your expressiveness and everyone's in my face and testify right you know all that and anyway so that was kind of weird like I was kind of into it for a little while you know um but then like I kind of scratched the surface and started asking questions and you know not getting very good answers to them yeah Um, and also just the protestant experience not the knock on all protestants but the American evangelical protestant experience is kind of pretty ahistorical it's like they're pretty sure about what they're not but they're not always sure about what they are and they don't necessarily know where they've come from and then um what was so funny is like one year it was Easter and I was in college and I was going to go to services like because they had evening services for the college students and they canceled Easter. They, they had the morning <laughs> service <laughs> for the old people, but they didn't have it for um for the for the student service because they expect all the students were going home. And uh, I hadn't I hadn't paid attention to that. Yeah, I was like, what am I going to do? And so there's this Greek girl in my dorm and she's like, well, you know, on the Eastern calendar, Easter is in. Easter's next week because they're on a different <laughs> nice. calendar. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go check out what your church is, you know? Yeah. And it was a really weird experience because the, the church I went to, um, it was in the back of an insurance building because oh my God, the church was awesome. so small. Yeah. We called it the ortho box, That's awesome. Know? And there was this priest there. I mean, all, all Americans, there were some Russian parishioners, but it was, it was an American priest. Um, and you know, I just started asking questions. I never really left, right? You know. And then whenever someone asks me, like, what made you change your mind? Um, why did you become Orthodox? Like, I asked that of my priest once. You know, during my catechism, because they make you actually like, they won't let you convert right away. Like, you got to like do a whole process. Get it, actually, yeah. Because like they're really like they really want to make sure you know what you're getting into. That's um, cool. And um, so I asked him like, how did you decide? Because he used to be. He was actually a missionary kid for a Baptist preacher oh, in wow. Africa, right? Yeah. And um, so he said, I was like, so how, how did you say I was correct? And he said, he was like, I concluded it was correct. That was why I, I changed And I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to top that answer. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like, you know, I'd always been interested in historical Christianity and the Orthodox claim. And I believe them that they basically are historical Christianity. You know, I mean, it's like, You know the form has adapted to local cultures along the way, but you know there's a direct line of succession from them to the back without any major changes in things. And um, you know, I was like, okay, this is what I kind of been looking for. It makes sense. And um, you know, uh, there's there's not much more more to the story than that. It's not like it matched my lifestyle or um, you know aligned with any of my political values. In fact, kind of the opposite. You know but um it it was just convincing, and so I was like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. And um, cool. yeah, so this is actually my baptismal cross, um nice. and yeah, and uh, our parish is still pretty small um we're 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 in a house now instead of a tiny like entrance That's... building, um, but you know it, it it it's been really interesting, and it was it was my priest in fact, who introduced me to Georgism. so oh cool. so he was, I mean he's He takes a lot of like, now you'll have super right-wing Orthodox priests and you'll have super left-wing ones. Like, I mean, they're, I mean, in this country, they're just Americans, right? Right. You know, so, um, but he very much drew on the ancient Christian tradition um, and kind of took him through what I feel are its natural conclusions, which is in support of things like Georgism, right? Like you go through and like, I mean, if you read the old Testament, like the Hebrews are pretty like obsessed with fairness to the stranger and orphans right. and widows and like the, the book of Ruth is all about it has like, it, like the subtext to the whole book of Ruth is like land policy you know yeah. and I just found that fascinating and it was something I hadn't really thought about before like the only act of violence Christ ever commits that's written down is like to like money changers and bankers right, right?
0: exactly <laughs> which is hilarious
1: you know, and so um, my, my priest is kind of like into environmentalism and stuff. And um, he's a big fan of Wendell Berry. And um, it, w- it, was, it was really interesting just, just talking to him and learning from him. His name is Father Cassian Sibley. Um, and um, yeah, it, it just kind of changed my perspective on a whole lot of things. Now, I mean, if I had gone somewhere else, like, I mean, you know, I mean, I found my current political and economic beliefs are very congruent with my religious faith there are other orthodox christians who are very right wing and we'll just give you the standard like republican line right you know but i mean i i'm telling you that i feel like this is kind of a natural outgrowth of my beliefs like there is a related movement to georgism which is called distributism yeah. um it's not identical but like they're they're very compatible and this was actually something that was very popular among Catholics at the turn of the century, oh, interesting. Uh, like GK Chesterton, for instance. Gotcha. Right. And um, and so like Orthodox are not Catholic, but, you know, we, we see eye to eye on a couple of things, at least, you know, not not the whole Pope thing and a bunch of <laughs> other stuff. Um, but, you know, that kind of, you know, hey, maybe the poor matter. And I mean, I, I have some very generous evangelical friends I don't want to cast shade on, but yeah. like... Very, very much different from like the whole like religion exists to serve the conservative American movement. Right. You know, some something very different from that. And um, like G.K. Chesterton's favorite quote that I, I love is the problem with capitalism is not that we have too many capitalists, but that we have too few. Right. And um, I think it was John Calvin, another person I don't have much in agreement with. But one thing I really like that he said, what no was it John Calvin or was it was Francis Bacon? Okay, it was Francis Bacon who said, um, "Riches, when they are," he said this in like old Elizabethan English. So I'll just paraphrase: "Riches, when they l- lie up on a heap, are like dung. They just create great stench. But when you spread them out evenly, it creates much, um, much, much fertile fertility and fruit. You know, and so I, um, so so just like being connected." the same thing that kind of drew me to orthodoxy, which was looking back in history, like, okay, what what are the principles I say I have, right? And reaching back into history, what is the natural conclusion of those principles? Like the same thing kind of worked on me with Georgism, even though like a lot of my Georgia's friends are just all over the map religiously, like they're Quakers or atheists yeah. or agnostic, or, you know, some of them are Orthodox like me, some of them are Catholic, Protestant, everything, right? But in my particular case, the same like looking back to history and trying to learn the lessons of history is also what kind of brought me to Georgism, you know, is because, you know, when you really go out and look there, there's all these things that never get talked about because history, it's not like history has been like censored or edited so much as like the only things we talk about are the things that drive our current conflicts
0: right right
1: and we forget about what thing what people used to care about like most people only know of william jennings Bryan as like the anti evolution guy <laughs> in the monkey trial
2: yeah
1: like they don't rec- they don't recognize what you mean when you say do not cru- crucify this country on a cross of gold which is what his actual legacy is you know and then it's like you say bimetallism, and like people are like, what? But you say scopes monkey <laughs> trial, and everyone knows what you're, you're like, talking about. Oh, I got about. that. You know, and that's, that's kind of great point. I, I believe in evolution for the record. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's great. That's great. That, and that that's a really good point as well that, you know, um, what we talk about is really driven by our partisan conflict and the cultural war. And we just ignore anything that really doesn't fit in the narrative or, you know, yeah, 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 doesn't score yeah. points.
1: Yeah, so it's um it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um so anything else you want to talk about or any other points you wanted to raise?
0: Uh one more and it's uh it's another one of these like uh complete right turns, but video games. Um oh, yeah y- y- you spent a lot of so you've create you built one, you've been successful with it as yeah. well, which is uh uh, it seems like a really difficult thing to me. Like I, I just see how competitive the video game market is. You know, like I know Xbox like uh, Game Pass. It's like five bucks a month, and it's like every title in the universe. It seems like, oh, yeah. um, is available to you. So I, I, you know, I how do you think about being successful in the in the video game industry and creating uh, new games?
1: Oh man, it's tough. Um, I, you know, there's this there's this probably apocryphal story. About how you're allowed to convert to Judaism, at least in this one sect, Right. So, like, this probably apocryphal story is that a proselyte goes up to a rabbi and says, Please, I would like to become Jewish. You know, please receive me into, yeah. you know, whatever sect of Judaism he's trying to enter. And the rabbi says, Go away, kid. And he comes <laughs> back again. And he's like, Please, no, I'm serious. Please make me, make, I, I want to become Jewish. Yeah. And the rabbi says, Go away. You're not serious. I don't want you. And he comes back a third time. And then the rabbi says, All right, you've passed the test. You're serious it. about this yes welcome you know we'll, we'll 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 start the catechesis yeah right um that's how i feel about anyone who comes up to me and asks me how do i get into video games <laughs> right like, right i like you almost want to like just like almost want to just like actively push them away because the only people who should be working in the video game industry are people who like really know what they're getting into right and the first, I just gave a presentation in Moscow about this, actually. The, the big mistake is that there's not one games industry. And there's actually gotcha. multiple games industries. There's, there's and, and knowledge of one industry doesn't necessarily prepare you for another. Oh, and interesting. It's because we, expand, we define games expansively, right? Um, an airline flight safety video is a motion picture. But is it film? No. Uh, right. We don't call it film even though it's, 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 it is a moving picture, right? right. And we don't consider the, what, whoever makes Airline flights 50 videos as part of the film industry, you know? But almost yeah. anything fun you do on a computing advice, almost everything gets labeled as a game. Right. And then we draw a big circle around that and call that the games industry. And it just gets huger <laughs> and huger and huger. And it's like 30 different things. And yeah. like, uh, as a good example of this, um, there's this game all the kids play called Roblox, which is its whole universe. Yeah, it's massive. As, it's as huge. big as it's, it's its own industry all to itself. And some people in the games industry, which is to say, my corner of the games industry, like, literally discovered it, like, yesterday. I'm, I'm, like, not even kidding. Like, yesterday. Oh, my God. Like, they came to me, like, Lars, what is Roblox? Right? You know? And this is despite them working on PC and console games for, like, 15 years. Right? And um, so, anyway, what is my point? So, the games industry is very difficult. Um, I'll just speak in generalities because I could. I mean, I could. Right. I could do a season of podcasts. (laughs)
0: That's awesome. You should. It'd be really interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maybe I will. But um, the the basic premise is that the basic truth of the game industry is that every kid wants to make video games, and there's an endless supply of twenty year olds. Yeah. And the results of that are predictable which is that there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of not really investing in the next generation because they're going to come to you anyway. Right. There's, I mean, honestly, I, I hate to like cash shade on my colleagues or anything, um, but especially at a lot of the big companies and even some of the indie ones, you know, there's a lot of abuse and there's a lot of exploitation yeah. and there's a lot of workers not knowing what they're worth. And so basically for the same skills, you will make less money and work worse hours and have more stress and more anxiety in the video game industry than if you were to go make tax software for dentists, right? Boring software is where the money is, kids. Don't make tax software for dentists, right? You know, I I mean, I've been been told as much by VCs, you know, that it's like, that's where the, you want to make easy money, invest in tax software for dentists. If you want to take a huge risk, invest in video games. And um, so making money as an, as like an independent creator is very hard. Yeah. Like, And it basically involves like you have to be on your game as a designer and a programmer and all of that stuff, whether that's you or you putting together a team. Yeah. And then you need to really keep your thumb on the industry and like identify new changes and basically like change your career, like make major shifts to your career every six months to a year. Gotcha. And you can already see the problem because the average game takes two to three years to make. Yeah. Right. And so like, like, how can you adapt?
0: You're trying to hit a moving target.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially like I mean, especially if you're making yeah, it's it's just so hard to do. And so what I always see with a lot of the indies who survive indie, but we mean like independent developers, yeah, a lot of them inevitably become publishers, right? Gotcha. Like they have a successful game and then they kind of exit the rat race because that's the only way to survive long term, you know? Yeah. And um and I mean that's what happened with me. I became a consultant, right? You know, instead of in the gold mines, like I'm now helping people sharpen their pickaxes, right? And like yeah. working for the more established people, right? you know, and hopefully helping investors from throwing their money away. I mean, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. I think I provide a lot of value, yeah. but, it's, eh, but it's like, it's really rough out there. And um, like we talk about, I, I mean, and like people complain about platforms like Steam and full disclosure, I've worked for them for like a year. I mean, also oh, nice. full disclosure, I've also heavily criticized them. You know and they've never like retaliated against me or anything yeah. but um like even them like taking 30 percent of every transaction which everyone you know in my mind rightly complains about um that's like nothing compared to other places like you know just how how locked down apple and google have the whole app store right because in addition to taking 30 percent, they also control who gets featured yeah in a much more total way and um Yeah, like, I mean, I've written a lot of pieces about it. And then, like, Roblox, like, the amount that their creators get paid out is kind of a pittance. Um, And then Roblox is so interesting because they've closed the loop because, like, my generation, we fantasized about making Nintendo games, right? And there was a 10-year gap between us playing games and us being able to get the skills, connections, money, and training, and hardware, rare, bizarre hardware, you know, in, like, 1990, to be able to create the games we loved. Yeah. This generation of Roblox kids are playing Roblox games with their friends, and then they aspire to make Roblox games, and then they go on to do so like tomorrow. Yeah. And so by the time they turn 18 and ready to enter my industry, they have five to 10 years of Roblox experience, perhaps even developer experience in Roblox. And maybe no no interest in joining the regular industry. Yeah. And so like, I sometimes say like Roblox is the pied piper sent by God to punish the game industry for its sins of not investing in juniors in the next generation. Right. Right. And like Roblox has just taken them right for better and for worse, yep. you know? And um, anyway, so game industry is super weird. It's not like, it's also one thing I think is interesting is like the game industry is like very self critical, at least on the bottom level. Like, you hear a lot of criticism about the game industry. And like, this can like make it seem like it's a particularly bad industry. And we have some like really bad stuff going on. Like if you're looking at all the stuff coming out of Activision, it's like not good. But I think it's also important to like keep things in context, this is not to defend the industry because I criticize it all the time, but like oil and gas (laughs) is like, not only are they kind of destroying the planet, but also like, have you been to an oil and gas conference? Like you think games have a boot Babes problem? and yeah. <laughs> exploitation of people. Just, like, wait. Right. just wait until you've got just a bunch of old guys who don't have anyone woke doing journalism and don't care what they say. right? You know, And this is not supposed to be like a whataboutism, like, well, at least we're better than the oil and gas industry. Yeah. I'm just saying it's like, you know, like the game industry has a lot of problems and we need to own up to them and we need to be better. We absolutely do. and I, And we're not literally the worst industry in the world. That's yeah. a very low bar to clear. but I think we've cleared it and we're responsible for less murders per fan than (laughs) soccer, you know, exactly. Also a very low bar to clear that you shouldn't give us too much credit for. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, if you have any particular questions about the game industry, I'm happy to happy to expound on them, but basically it's, it's a tough industry. If you want to be creative and like creatively fulfilling. Yeah. That's really hard to do at the same time you're trying to make money right because right. you also have to figure out how to make money and then by the time you figure it out it's obsolete and you got to figure it out again yeah. and that's just crushing like you have to be like you have to be like at the top of you have to be like in the top 1% of people skilled right. at like both making games and knowing how to monetize them today before everyone else figures it out and it shifts right. again and it's just yeah.
0: just really yeah. difficult and, yeah, and go ahead and how did you think so- systematically about finding the $20 bill on the sidewalk when so you created Defender's Quest you right. were successful at it um is it one of those things where you know you're just you know you're clearly I I'm assuming you're a lot smarter than a lot of people trying to do it right which <laughs> you're like I I don't know uh, I mean when, when I mean is there other, other things systemically I guess
1: I mean I'm also a lot luckier right so I mean I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a lot smarter because I mean I know people way smarter than me who don't succeed. And either that means smartness doesn't matter as much as you think, or it means luck matters a little more. There's some people who are like, it's all luck and it's not all luck. You can get better. I think part of it is I'm probably more arrogant and confident um, than a lot of people. I mean, I also have whatever degree of privilege is afforded by, you know, you know, net privilege from being white that is not canceled out by having Tourette's syndrome or whatever, you know what I mean? So like, um, so there's that. But also, just um, but, but not every white guy succeeds. In fact, most of them don't. So it's got to be more than that. Uh, I had good timing and I gotcha. did see an opportunity in the market. The way I succeeded was that at the time, the Flash games industry was really huge at the time. There were Flash games. Okay, everywhere. gotcha. And what I did is that I leveraged, um, at the time, there were very few people who were applying the shareware model. The flash games right gotcha. everyone was just making money off of licenses right where you the company pays to put their logo on your game and you get like a couple thousand bucks yeah and so i was like what if i just ask the customers for money and i give them a huge ass demo not like a really restricted demo but like a huge one yeah like three hours and it's an rpg and then it like also at the end it like saves your save file so you can export it to your computer and it's like here's your save file Here you Buy the game and you can like see that the next half of it And it was like story-driven and it ended on a cliffhanger, but it was like still really satisfying. And then we connected that up to our own site. We weren't even on Steam and you could just like download the full version. And something like 75, 80, 90% of our traffic came from these two flash portals, Congregate and Newgrounds. So I know the strategy worked. And that was what got Steam's attention at the time, back when you couldn't just get on it for free. You had to convince them your game was successful enough. And so... So I did find a $20 bill on the ground, but I also was lucky enough to notice it and also confident enough to go after it. And no one else had really tried that strategy at that time. I mean, Shareware had done it before 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? It it was the oldest strategy in the book, but I just applied it to the world of Flash games. And now that model is obsolete because Flash games are gone and you can't do it anymore. But... Now, Flash games have been replaced by HTML5 games. And there recently was a game that uses the exact same model and succeeded called Shapes.io. They oh, wow. are like Factorio. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but yeah. it is, it's a game where like, you make a big factory, right? And so it's a refinement of Factorio. It's a little simpler, like has some other affordances to make it more appealing to its own crowd. And then they released it as a web game. And then they later had an upsell to Steam, right? And so they yeah. were leveraging the fact that I can't get enough traffic and discovery on the main portal. So right. I'm going to get it where discovery is currently cheap on the web and especially like, but that has a lot to do with timing because like right now flash just died. So an entire generation is like, you can play games on the web. Like, right. What? And then that'll probably get saturated and then more people will try it. And then like yeah. the value of that will go down. But you know, by the time you hear about a strategy too it's late, usually too late to capitalize on it.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And you know, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, A crazy, crazy game, no pun intended. Um, You know, so before I let you go, are there any video games you recommend, you uh, gift to people that you recommend?
1: Um, Video games that I recommend that people play. Well, the irony of making games for a living is that no time, you'll never play one again. (laughs) You know, Um, so geez, what have I been playing lately? Um, Lately, there's a type of game that I like to play a lot, and that is a kind of game where um i I call them boring old dab games and they're the kind of game where i can load it up really quickly it's not gonna take hours of download i'm gonna be able to play it for a little bit probably not fail yeah and make something like progress
2: (laughs) nice have
1: something to show for my precious 45 minutes of game playing a week right you know between my three kids and my chairs and my job right yeah you know And um, one that's pretty good for that right now is actually a game made by a friend of mine called T minus 30. It's available on steam. It just launched. It's a city builder where you only have 30 minutes to build a city.
0: Oh, nice. You have to
1: evacuate the entire earth in 30 minutes and 30 minutes represents like, I don't know, like a year or something. Yeah. And so like, you got to get them from like sixties era rocket technology to like, I don't know, like the future or whatever. And like build up the economy and get as many people off the earth as you can in 30 minutes. Oh, that's awesome. And then do it all over again. And it's like, procedural and stuff and you know super it's like cool. that ticks all the boxes for being a boring old dad game for me right. it's like the kind of game i can actually play and like it's like oh and it's kind of like low stakes it's like i see how well i did and like i learned how to do better and like maybe unlock the next like set of things or whatever you know yeah. so it, it works for, for for me
0: super cool super cool i love that um well lars where can people find your work and do you have any parting thoughts i really appreciate you coming on
1: yeah so i mean you can find my work at fortressofdoors.com it's like a fortress of doors you know i don't it's kind of abstract but um that's my blog and i post updates on my long in development defenders quest 2 as well as like my thoughts on the game industry and economics and stuff um i write for game developer magazine which was previously gamma sutra you can tell why they changed the name yeah. um and um so like i have an article out in, in game developer about um digital real estate and the policies there and everything and um yeah any any kind of parting thoughts yeah i would say that the whole philosophy of georgism it is not just a one weird trick because it actually like it actually or or we would have just put it everywhere by now like it actually does take some work to implement and i do think the secret to georgism is assessments and localism right that's its weakness and its strengths because um, everyone else is fighting over the national, like national electoralism, we need to get the president, we need to get the Congress right. to do anything, and the other is fighting just as hard and spending just as much money. So you're just raising each of your own costs together. And right. then the, the secret shadow party captures them both to make sure that they're both <laughs> in favor of never withdrawing from Afghanistan, you know, and um, other other things like that. and. What I think is um, the actual way forward, for Georgism, what's nice is that you don't need to control the whole government to make some progress and prove that this is a good way to do things. You can implement it at the local level, depending on your state laws, right? There's a nasty clause in the state constitution of Texas that prevents it, but you can still make progress. Like if you just, a lot of, and it has to do with assessment. If you can get the assessments officers to see things your way, or even elect your own people to be assessors, Yeah. Um, You can make a big difference. Like, uh, for instance, most land values in America are chronically underassessed. So even if you're laboring under the yoke that says property taxes cannot be split rate, you've got to tax buildings and land together at one rate. You can't tax them separately. If you can just fix all of the assessments where land is really undervalued. Yeah. You're effectively raising the land value tax and you'll start to see incrementally, partially, the benefits that are predicted by land value tax, you know, um, just because land land is chronically undervalued almost everywhere. And um, Ted Courtney has a lot of writing and speaking on this subject. And, um, and I, feel, I, I believe the evidence backs him up. So, I mean, if you can start in your local area and, and also like worry less about who gets to be the state Senator or the Lieutenant Governor and more about who gets to be your local tax assessor and appraiser
0: super interesting
1: something that like i looked it up like on, my, on like local elections it was like something like a margin of like two thousand votes in my area oh my right? god like right? actually
0: and, doable like you could actually flip that
1: yeah and like like nobody cares nobody like, cares, cares about it at all like i think a lot a bunch of them run unopposed right it, yeah i mean in, in texas it's all like about winning the republican primary right right because it's a one-party state yeah but like i mean and there's a way to pitch this that is palatable to conservatives and there's a way to pitch this that's palatable to liberals. That is right in line with all of their principles to conservatives. It's like, hey, isn't it kind of unfair that if you build something, you're penalized for it? Like, hey, isn't it kind of unfair that you don't get to keep like the the money that you worked hard for, you know? And then to liberals, it's like, hey, isn't it kind of unfair that, you know, the land which nobody made, like someone squats on it and to the average renter and worker, hey, isn't it unfair that the rent is too damn high and it just keeps getting more expensive? You know, there's a way to pitch this to just about anybody that is not spin but just understanding what what they want and need and i I think that's the way forward and um the weakness is if you do a bad assessment game and your assessments get out of whack it doesn't matter how much control you have and how strong your land value tax is you'll have a tax and you'll deserve it so um like i think georgism lives or dies at the local level with local organizing and a focus on getting the assessments to work, which right. modern technology makes it possible. And they did it in 1911 without any of it. So that's, that's kind of my feelings on that. Um, for anyone who accuses us of just being utopian and like impractical, right. you know, those are the concessions I'll make, but I also see them as a source of strength.
0: Right. Well, and you know, um, Lawrence, I think, you know, this is the true $20 Uh, On the sidewalk, it's a lot more than $20, $20 trillion. It feels like on the sidewalk for, you know, American growth and even growth more broadly in the world that, um, and and I I think the appealing thing about it is if you can get the model to work on the local level, it's easy, It's straightforward to copy. You know what I mean? It's, it's a fairly simple thing. It's not, this is not rocket science.
1: And I think like right now we just need awareness that it exists. One interesting anecdote I'll leave you with. And this is something I just found out yesterday from my fourth session of Ted Gartney's assessment class is Ted Gortney, who's this, I keep referencing him, he's, a, he's a, yeah. a property value assessor, he's a Georgist, he was one of the co-signers of a famous letter to Gorbachev, right, oh, at really? the fall of the Soviet Union, and they wrote him a letter and they exhorted him, please, please do not give in to all of the experts who are going to flood you from the West, the Harvard educated right. economists who are going to make you privatize and sell the country yeah. down the river, please like this is your chance like like the country is crumbling like you've decided communism is the way forward please consider like serious land reform and land policy that can enrich your country and they listened to the harvard people unfortunately and everything went down the tubes but they also sent that letter to a bunch of satellite countries satellite states yeah one of them was estonia and estonia listened and I, i i haven't Done a deep. Di- I just found out about this yesterday, so I haven't done yeah. a deep dive on Estonia's policies. But I've always known as a Norwegian that Estonia like been pretty up and coming because it's like, wow, here's all these like right. You Estonia- hear about it, right? Estonian immigrants in Norway, and like my uncle married an Estonian woman, and it's like Estonia, 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 Estonia. Yeah. Like what? What? Something's going on there, and apparently, like they've been doing really well, much better than their neighbors, and they've had a lot of these Georgia's policies because they listened to that letter that Gortney and a bunch of these other other people um, wrote. And I think that's a really interesting story. And I'm going to go and I'm going to like bone up on Estonia and see like how much there is there. Yeah. Um, but I just think, you know, the more people know about stories like that, the less objections like, well, this can never be implemented anywhere. It's like, actually, it's been implemented in like five places. Right. You know,
0: no doubt. And very successful places like Estonia. Um. So uh, one more question. Uh Practically, if people want to learn more about Georgism, are there any like uh, think tanks or, or policy places shops they can go to to right. learn about how to like affect change within their local community?
1: Right. So there's a couple of places. um There are three. So so like besides just like I mean, if you want to know what Georgism is, you know, there's my book review you can pass them to, yeah, which is basically great. like Progress in poverty and Poverty in many fewer pages. Yeah. Um, but like if you actually want to get involved, there's the it's a mouthful of a German word, so I'll have to spell it for you offline so you can... Okay, like, we'll it.
0: put it's a sh- link in there.
1: It's the Schalkenbach Foundation, I think. <laughs> nice. it, it's this old, like, centuries-old foundation that, like, goes back to the old single taxer days in the 1900s, I think. And it's, it, it continues to this day, and they promote, like, Georgist activism and thought and, like, research nice. and stuff. And then there's also the Henry George School of Social Science, which does a bunch of the YouTube videos and also sponsors... The class I'm taking from Ted Gortney. Okay, cool. Um, so those are two good sources to look up. And then a third source is not explicitly Georgist, but is very much moving in that direction. And it's, um, okay, I'm gonna have to Google it real quick here. It's yeah, all good. Association of Assessors International. It, it's the Assessments um, Group, International Association of Assessing Officers. Nice. So the land value, this is the organization that Gourtney is a part of. And they do a lot of research on like, what is every Canadian province and American state's like policies on assessment and how do they look on a map and how are they different? And yeah. then like, what do we think are our best practices? And I asked Gwartney at the last session, are these guys like, have they absorbed Georgist ideas as just like the best things to do? And he's like, they're not like officially Georgist they're moving in our direction and more coming to recognize that the kind of policies I'm always pushing for are, in fact, the correct ones. But of course, as assessors, you have to like follow like, like you're you're duty bound to follow your local jurisdictions rules. So yeah, like they're always going to be an organization like that, but they do a lot of training and education. And the more Georgist minded people get involved, the more like this organization can kind of like help be a part of that just through you know because because a lot of it isn't a lot of like george's ideology is just good sense and right. assessment officers like yeah you want to accurately assess yeah. land and you want to accurately assess property like why would good. you want to do that yeah like that's that's the job we care yeah. about doing a good job and so yeah the international association of assessing officers the schalkenbach foundation and the henry george school of social science both their website and youtube and their zoom classes that they offer are all excellent resources
0: super awesome well thank you so much lars i I really appreciate you taking the time i've I've learned a lot
1: ah thank you so much i'm i will always take anyone up on an offer to bore them to death with my (laughs) with with the things that i'm into on the internet but you know i mean i really feel like i really feel like you know there's that there's there's like that criticism that it's like okay it's one weird trick it's utopian but it's like you look through history there's been one weird tricks scurvy, vitamin C, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Some lemon
0: juice and, you know, yourself.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's like, I mean, the diagnosis is not simple, right. But once you figure it out, it's like, you can, a lever put in the right place can, 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 can shift the entire world, you know, removing the broad street pump handle ended the cholera epidemic, you know, like there's, um, at least locally, right. You know, small things can have a big impact and it's all about knowing what is the ground causes of everything and anyway i'm still doing research to make sure it's all right and i haven't just been taken in by a very convincing philosophy but the more (laughs) i read the more i'm convinced and when it's all out there i mean people can kick the tires all they want and tell me what i'm wrong and I'll, i'll i'll listen to what they have to say
0: yep and while you're you know your research just on the video game angle i think is an ingenious way to get get to it you know Really yeah,
1: I was is. I wasn't expecting to find it there, honestly. It was it was kind of shocking to me because digital land doesn't have to be like physical <laughs> land. But they choose to make it that way and then it <laughs> behaves like it does okay, in the real great. world.
0: <laughs> Super cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well thank you, Lars. Uh, we'll have to have you back on to talk uh, if you find anything else.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Anytime
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. quick note on the new guinea anecdote philosophy bear was not able to confirm it nor definitely could disconfirm it after looking into the matter a bit further although he now thinks it's probably false